Welcome to Skycast episode 17, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing season 5, episode 3, Sleeping Giants. Just a quick note uh, before we start here that we know we are... <laughs> We are behind. It's only been three episodes, but we are behind. Um, I travel a lot for work, as you know. Sarah was doing... Excuse, excuse, excuse. (laughs) We're behind. We will try not to be behind too much this season, but sometimes things happen. However, (laughs) this is a spoiler-free zone. Yes. Uh, We are only recapping and discussing episode three. We will not be... I mean, we watched episode four. Of course we did. <laughs> who, who are we kidding? Um, but we are going to act as if we have no knowledge of what happens past this episode. So Which, all of our analyzing and theorizing is really is limited to all of the things we know up to episode three. It's a little bit of a bummer because there were like a few things that were explored in episode four that I wanted to talk about in episode three. But now I feel like I can't because... You know, I know too much. <laughs> There's still plenty to I talk know. about. Plenty. Um, with that said, what did you think about this episode? Oh, man. Well, I think for all of the Bell Arc fandom, this was the episode we all were waiting for for an entire year. Um, and we all kind of basically knew that this was going to be the episode in which they, they reignited. Reignited? Well, yes. That too. They also reignited. <laughs> <laughs> but they reunited. Um, and honestly, it was the most extra thing I've ever seen. And I loved it. So. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty glorious. And it was a, you know, it was a journey getting there. Um, yeah. But it was really satisfying. I really enjoyed this episode. I think all three episodes so far this season have been really, really strong. They are on their A game. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wait, what I loved about this episode is we got a lot of backstory. Um, and we got a lot of fodder to theorize. So We do. We do. And we got a, a lot of shading in of the, of the characters, yeah. which I really appreciated. And we'll get into all of that in a little bit. But I think it's safe to say both of us really enjoyed this. Um, the Bell Arc reunion is going to be as extra as it was in the show. So watch I, out for <laughs> all of our fan girliness. It's coming your way. I, uh, I I was definitely sitting on the edge of my seat this whole episode because it was just so action. Oh, my God. Also, I watched this in, like, the worst circumstances of all time. It was, like, after, like, a 17-hour day working <laughs> in a hotel room by myself at, like, midnight in a different time zone. And it was still great. And yet we were still texting each other. <laughs> and I was still texting Sarah, like, oh, my God. I was, like, live texting. So it was wonderful. Um, anyway, and she was watching it for the second time. Yeah, I watched it twice that night. <laughs> so All for good. the record, though, a lot of that was not for Bell Arc. It was just to go back and, like, look at the, the more subtle things they brought up in the episode. I, I was – I was there was just – there's a lot to discuss. Yes. So we should, we should jump in. Um, before we dive in, though, just a quick reminder – Super appreciate if you guys would take a minute and rate and review us on iTunes. As always, it helps other fans of The 100 find us. We really, really appreciate it. Um, Also, if you have any comments or questions you want to, you know, kick our way, feel free. (laughs) Always, always excited and interested to hear from our listeners. Yeah, we read everything that we get. so. (laughs) So without further ado, let's jump in. Let's jump in. Uh, so we open up on the Allegius crew. They are searching the woods when they hear someone screaming. And then we flash to a man who is basically staked into the ground with Clark watching him through the rifle scope. Maddie doesn't like this cruelty, but Clark reminds her that Allegius is trying to take their home and they have to do this. Maddie still doesn't want the man to suffer, but Clark says they can't kill him. Not yet. 
I like that right off the bat, um, we are having a central conflict set up and we see the difference in character between Maddie and Clark. You know, this is the difference between innocence and experience. And I think it's really important to remember, you know, that Clark is no longer pure. She's no longer innocent. And Maddie is something, it hurt, Maddie's purity is something, and I don't mean that in like a virgin kind yeah, of way. Um, <laughs> Maddie's purity is, is something that we should really watch and see how influential of these different characters as they come to meet her yeah like what what is maddie gonna end up exactly like at the end i mean of right season? now she's like a blank slate mm-hmm. i think wait let's yes. see if you know to use a westworld reference she's a white hat right now <laughs> <laughs> let's see if she turns into a black hat um and like jumping off of that too this is the first real scene I mean you got a little bit of it in episode one with clark shooting that guy in the head but this is the first scene where we really see clark's cruelty yeah. and her just total lack of of guilt well I would say guilt like she like doesn't like it she doesn't enjoy doing it but she doesn't really feel bad about it at this point no no I think she looks as this is very black and white you know it's it's us or them built could be killed kill or be killed yeah I mean like we had that discussion um in episode One. one about her basically kind of honing in on her animal instincts and, mm-hmm. and becoming that like like the killer be killed don't feel guilt if you kill that kind of thing right. you just have to survive right. and we um, we knew that it was going to come into play particularly because maddie has like shifted and reoriented her entire worldview mm-hmm. so i think this is just the first you know sort of tangible example of that but it was quite an explosive look at that you know right yeah it was shocking <laughs> it would definitely is this is not the clerk that we've known yeah no that's for sure the Elegious crew find the man, and as they're trying to figure out what happened, Clark shoots at them. Dioza spots their hiding place, and McCreary shoots a huge energy cannon at them, and partially deafened from the blast, Clark and Maddie run. Um, so I think it's interesting here to see that Dioza doesn't really have total control over McCreary. Like, he tells her that it's not her army, and that's kind of our first real clue that we get that everything is not you know all right in Elegious land either their their hierarchy isn't quite figured out and even though Dioza seems like the leader she, her, her lead is is still a little bit tenuous at this yeah point. yeah I think you know we didn't realize there was a room for argument yeah in this chain of command I wouldn't argue with her <laughs> I wouldn't um and I, after this episode I still wouldn't um but it is interesting to think about like what is the actual chain of command how did this all get started and you know it it does lead to some questions about the their origin story which, which we will talk we about find out later. <laughs> yeah but I like that they plant this seed early on yeah so that you start to question it and then as it comes out into play a little bit later on you're already the wheels are already in mm-hmm. motion and what's so interesting too to me about this kind of quote-unquote time travel story Brit's probably rolling her eyes over here at the at the moment I'm saying this um but I like that, you know, Elegius really is from like a hundred years in the past, and yet they're much more advanced than our people here a hundred years in the future. Um, they have weapons and technology that Sky Crew didn't even have up on the Ark, and, and the Grounders definitely didn't have. Um, so it's just kind of cool and also a little scary to see the weapons that they uh, have access to um, and, and wonder, you know, what else is hiding on that ship of theirs that they can use. Totally. Yeah, it's really scary. Also wanted to call out um, a really effective use of Heartbeat again. I think this is the third episode in a row where I've noticed it. I'm not sure if they've used this before in past seasons, but they are. it's it's very um, 
uh, obvious in this season when they use it? Or maybe I'm just paying I, attention I to it? I think you must be paying attention because I have heard none of them. And this scene, all I remember is that just like really high-pitched screeching, which maybe yeah. that just like took my entire... It's like right when they get bombed or blown up um, and they're all disoriented and you can hear the like ba-bump, ba-bump. Yeah, see, you hear that and I heard the like the deafening like high-pitched screech yeah. of like the the what the bomb had left and like yeah. kind of blown their eardrums yeah. it, it was really effective for me because it's like everything else is is like blurry and you can't hear anything except your own heartbeat it was really it's claustrophobic actually. I did really love how they did that scene though with um you know dampening the sound and making it really sound like they had just you yeah. know everything gotten was almost blown up fuzzy. Um, that was that was a really nice use of of sound editing um and it, it definitely puts you kind of right in the scene yeah great job everyone Dioza tells McCreary to get someone to interrogate alive and then she asks Zeke to get her a stretcher and a med kit but Zeke is skeptical about how she plans to save him with only her field training he says that they might still have a doctor if she hadn't made McCreary her right hand man but before he finishes speaking Dioza shoots the suffering man in the head also before we say anything else caveat Jason this week revealed that Zeke's name isn't actually Zeke. His name is Miles Shaw. And I know people on the show call him Shaw. Actually, it's Miles Ezekiel, Ezekiel Shaw. Um, but people on the show call him Shaw. We're going to keep calling him Zeke because that ship has sailed. <laughs> we are attached to that name and I can't stop saying it. And I had to remind myself like six times while we were reviewing, recapping this podcast, not to call him Zeke. And we're just going to keep we're doing it. We're just going to keep doing it. He does not feel like a shot to me, like whatsoever. He doesn't feel like a Miles either. No. So we will, um, in perpetuity now, continue <laughs> to call him Zeke unless something changes and we let you know. Yeah. But okay. when we say Zeke, we mean Shaw. Continue. Um, sorry. <laughs> I did want to point out in this scene, clearly McCreary, McCreary, bleh, McCreary is a loose cannon. Um, we see him continue to test Yoza's orders throughout this episode. And it's just not not a good sign for what's to come this season. No. I mean, you know, he is constantly, you know, pulling his leash and seeing how far he can get with her. And he, he is a scary dude. Um, and I don't, I don't like what this suggests for the rest of the season I mean we're very clearly moving towards some kind of power struggle and as to who ends up on top um I would still put all of my money behind Yoza but you know McCreary is he has control of the army seemingly so well we can talk about that more a little bit later too and he's Um, continually disgruntled with her her orders her well yeah I mean like her her commands so you know he's he's itching and I do like that it's immediate, immediately clear that um, Zeke isn't okay with the way that Dioza and her crew are handling things because at this point we hadn't quite gotten much of Zeke. This is kind of, I mean, besides the the very brief introduction we got in um, episode one, this is kind of where we're learning about him. And right off the bat, he's, you know, not okay with the way that they are conducting their business, especially McCreary. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to more Zeke throughout the season. Definitely Zeke. <laughs> Zeke. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Dioza tells Zeke and McCreary that both he and him, Zeke and McCreary, that was not a logical sentence, um, but they are both still useful to her for now. And as she says, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you want. Um, and we heard that line from the trailer, and I just wanted to call it out again. It's, it's really... It's interesting words to me, and it sounds like they come from experience and not just, you know, wisdom that she's heard in the past. Um, so I, I, you know, I wonder, 
what kind of army has she had in the past? If you know, like it clearly, it seems like she's had an army that she didn't necessarily want. Right, and um, maybe it was like a ragtag crew yeah. with like terrible odds or something. And um, what has she been through to kind of learn that? Yeah, that I like bit. that they leave that like that that line there because it it does spike your interest mm-hmm. in her backstory. Um, and they do start to like sprinkle in tidbits of her backstory in throughout this episode. And this is just like a really nice way of kind of wetting our appetite for it. Yeah, it's not nearly enough though, because I am like salivating for Dio's memoir. I'm ready to read it. Oh yeah. Yeah. We're, we're just scratching the surface yeah. here. Uh, Zeke asks why it has to be war at all. And Dioza says that that's spoken like a man who gave up death for spaceships. Zeke tells her he'd choose speed over death every time. But as Dioza counters, what about life over death? Without the valley, they die. And so the valley is worth fighting over. This is just such great writing. I mean, this little exchange between them is such a good example of how to effectively use a tiny little portion of your screen time to both convey characterization and exposition. Mm -hmm. That is not easy to do. And they give you so much information about where these two are, where they came from, and also how they relate to each other and their backstories. And this is just like, it's mind-blowing. I mean, especially with Zeke, we yeah. I feel like this scene gives us a very full picture of him. You know, he clearly left the Air Force to join um, this space mission. He likes speed. So he's, you know, a, maybe a bit of a daredevil, but he's also... A good person, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's really dynamic. He's fully, fully dimensional. So I have seen nothing that I don't like yet of Zeke. <laughs> no, no. Um, and I also, I think this scene makes me sympathize with Diosa in some ways because, you know, she's not wrong. Clark shot first and, and now they're just kind of protecting themselves and defending themselves. And I mean, they are in the position of our own heroes in season one in many ways, so... I mean, they're a little bit, a little bit more evil, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, space crew is in their space pod, heading to the Allegius ship, Allegius Four to be exact, quote unquote, powering a better tomorrow. Mm. Uh, that's our Allegius Corporation. Raven notes that it must be a mining ship, and Monty has heard stories about missions sent to mine asteroids or search for habitable planets a hundred years ago. But as Raven says, they got back somehow, so they must have fuel they can steal. All right. This is where we insert time for Sarah to go theory crazy. So go ahead. I am just so excited by this mention. They did not have to mention habitable planets. This was an info dump that was clearly meant to be hidden with the mining stuff. But it's going to be very important later on. I have absolutely no doubt. Just like I had no doubt last season that Bill Cadigan was coming back. I have equally absolutely no doubt right now. <laughs> Just because like what would be the point? Like if if, if habitable, habitable planets weren't going to be a focus point at some at some point in time, they wouldn't have mentioned it. Right? I, I mean like I am inclined to agree, but I always agree with you. So I I'm so I already gave my um, theory at the end of episode one, I think, about them going into cryosleep for a long period of time. Um, we know that the end of this season is going to be, as they've told us, more explosive than all of the others, something that we've never seen before, blah, blah, blah. They always say that, but they're always right. Yeah. Um, and at this point, I don't know where else they can go on Earth. So I have two ideas. One idea, well, I think the overall idea is I think that they are going to destroy Eden, which we will get to. 
um, a little bit later because I have a, a theory that, from some information we learn later that ties into that. Um, but I think they're not going to be able to live there. So I think they're going to have to go back into space. They are either going to go into cryo sleep and wait for Earth to become habitable again, however long that takes, or we are going to go to a habitable planet also through cryo sleep. <laughs> so I'm going to pull for that last one because I feel like Earth has given us all it can right now. I'm, I'm done with Earth. Earth is tired. Earth is tired and there's possibilities that there are other people somewhere on another habitable planet which is again something that we will get to later and it's totally not personal wish fulfillment it is I mean like it is totally personal wish fulfillment but it is backed up by science so. <laughs> which is even more of her own personal wish fulfillment um but those are that that's what I'm thinking at the end of this season and I really hope it's the habitable planets one and not just like waiting until Earth is habitable because I worry that that might be a little bit um, redundant. Redundant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. I feel like I would be very, not bored, but disappointed if they yeah. do cryo sleep and then wait, you know, 100 years and then come back to Earth. You know, I do think that kind of ties in with the like cyclical nature of humanity that mm-hmm. this show is more interested in than like going to explore different planets in space that doesn't quite seem on brand for the hundred well I don't think aliens are on brand for the hundred but I didn't say aliens I said habitable planet possibly with people on it we'll get there (laughs) yes yes but I will say I lost my shit when Monty said this I was so excited Britt wasn't here I actually could hear you (laughs) in Michigan at an event when this happened (laughs) Um, so we're going to just like put a pin in that, hopefully revisit it later. Mm-hmm. So the Allegia ship has an engine destroyed, but the hub is still rotating, which means that it has gravity. And unfortunately for Harper and Monty, that means no zero G SpaceX. Darn. <laughs> I liked this little look from Harper. You know, it was, it was totally superfluous, but it was a really good example of like a nice character development that we've been wanting the writers to give her. Yeah. You know, just like a little bit extra oomph to give her some definition um, that she's been clearly lacking. And so it wasn't necessary, but I liked it. Yeah, it was, it was cute. It was cute. Uh, Monty asks if the Allegius crew could still be inside, but Echo says that they would have been shot out of the sky if they saw a foreign ship trying to board them. Raven and Amori work together to land, but Amori loses control and Raven ends up taking over uh, and getting them to safety if, you know, it's a little bit of a bumpy landing. Uh, and Amori is clearly devastated that she failed. I just love the unique perspective that Echo brings to this group, you know, and we do see a lot of it in this episode. This is prime Echo um, screen time here. She's just such a valuable addition to their team, and she brings such a different um, criteria of, like, experience that I think, like, she has a freshness that Mm -hmm. the other the other guys like would never think like her she just think always seems to be thinking outside of the box and I I love it I'll just give you a little bit of a teaser for my feelings about Echo this uh, episode but she's my new favorite character <laughs> she, she's so, a pretty badass everything she episode. said this episode was gold and I loved every second that everything she, was on she did in this episode yeah. was gold <laughs> she is gold gold um, star for Echo it, yeah she really is great and uh you know who's not great Murphy he, Murphy's a little shit yeah <laughs> like always you, he you can just see the strain between him and Amori it's very very clear but he also very obviously wants her attention and and will do anything and say anything to get it he's like a little boy pulling a, a braid in the classroom you know yeah yeah he, he's very very immature 
He, or I should say his emotional capacity yeah. is very immature. Well, he, he has just, the emotional range of a teaspoon. He doesn't know how to process his emotions and deal with them in a positive way. Everything comes out um, cruel or sarcastic. He, like, yeah. can't be sincere. He just can't do it. No, he can't. <laughs> and, you know, it was it was so hard to see Amori feeling so disappointed in herself I feel like she's just so scared about becoming expendable after she's like finally found this nucleus of a family and this was like her you know I feel like this was a test this mostly her for first, herself first test for and her, yeah. she let herself down and my poor precious baby it was just heartbreaking to see her I mean she didn't she, let herself down I feel like she feels like she let them down like but it, that's herself what I mean. doesn't even come into it I think I think she's disappointed that she she failed yeah. in herself and it broke my heart yeah I did it was awful poor baby um they climb out into the Allegia ship and Echo immediately pulls out a sword my girl uh Bellamy looks at her a little askance but Echo reminds him that they don't know what they're walking into and again first of many times this episode that I stan Echo she's so prepared <laughs> And she's just so smart. She's yeah. just a strategist. I mean, we get a lot of very smart women in a lot of different kind yeah. of ways in this show, which I appreciate, deeply, deeply appreciate the, you know, variety of women and the number of women that we get, you know, at the forefront. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah. But I just love that they give her the room to show off that she's smart and that she thinks she's yeah. a thinker. So, uh, my how the tables have turned. <laughs> my how the tables have turned. I just want to say for the record that I know that I give the Echo Bellamy stuff, like, a really but hard time. But that's not against Echo's It character. is not against Echo at all. I've always been really fascinated by her. If you remember last season, I was really, really optimistic that they were going to give her an arc. We just wanted more from I her. I always want more from her. And that we didn't quite get last season, but we're, we're getting it now. <laughs> and these, like, last two episodes are, are getting it yeah, now. I think I, they're very, very devoted to giving her more stuff, and yeah. that makes me really happy. So they open the, the docking doors to this, like, really annoying alarm, which Harper says they'd have shut off already if someone was there. So, yes, good call. Uh, Raven pulls Amori aside and asks her to stay back and run a full diagnostic check on the pod. Murphy offers to stay back and help, but Amori tells him that the only function he serves is making stupid jokes. Truth. Uh, Murphy takes offense to that, but before it goes much further, Bellamy tells Harper to stay back with Amori instead. You know, it's so obvious that Murphy's... Um best skill mm-hmm. his like most devious skill is <laughs> targeting someone else's weakness oh god you know he can find their sensitive button and just push it relentlessly like it's his specialty and it's just it it comes up over and over again in this episode I feel like he is he's in a really not great place yeah. here and he is lashing, lashing out. out exactly what I was gonna say he is lashing out at everyone and mm-hmm. he does it to multiple people but Amori gets the brunt of it you know she is the the victim that suffers the most I think from his cruelty in this episode it is but I think what's interesting is I think he he lashes out to other people like to make them feel bad but he lashes out to Amori to get her attention I think those are like two very different um different ways of but I do think that like there is like a tinge more cruelty when she does something that makes him feel bad yeah like there is a couple of moments in this episode where she says something that is actually really hurtful to him and to get back at her I mean he it's it's revenge you know he he wants to give her a little taste of what he just felt I think what she's doing is revenge well because no it's he always starts it it is it is a vicious cycle and then he can't let it go right right (laughs) 
Um, I also wanted to ask, what do you think about Raven in this scene? Was she disappointed in Amori? Because she certainly didn't really say or do anything to make her feel better. I, I just found it a little bit of a weird reaction from Raven's point because I, I see her as kind of a really good teacher and a good mentor, but I, I, I don't feel like she was that in this scene. I think it fit her character because Raven is not particularly affectionate and I think Raven looks at Omori as sort of a surrogate of herself and if Raven failed in this kind of way I think she would want people to just ignore it and not comment on it and just let her deal with it on her own and figure out how to fix it and I think she's giving Omori the space that she would want if that happened to her and I don't necessarily know if she's considering the way that Amori is like taking her particular behavior, but I don't think that she's punishing her in any way. It's I don't think it's intentional. That's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Um, about how like yeah. Raven wanted to be treated. I just I thought I thought it was interesting because it, Raven has it was had cold. so many throughout her like last at least two seasons, maybe three. This this um, idea of failure has come up so many times for her, yeah. and so. I guess I I would have assumed she would have been a little bit more sympathetic, but I I really like your interpretation. I think it's more to do with failure and being independent and not Mm -hmm. relying on anyone. And so in that way, like you succeed on your own and you also fail on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The Allegiant ship is like a maze. And when the group sees a no inmates past this point sign, Monty notes that this was probably a mission done with prison labor. Mining missions were dangerous, and they sent people they thought were disposable, which Bellamy says sounds familiar. Uh, but Raven tells them to relax. The crew's ancestors were the prison ship people, but their descendants are just survivors like them. Yeah, yeah this does sound familiar. Sounds yeah. exactly like season one. <laughs> it's a nice little callback. Thanks, guys. Yep. Uh, and, and even more um, in common now that they have with the Allegius crew, we can we can kind of see... The, the small ways that our, our group relates to them. Um, yeah, obviously, the, this is intentional. It's almost it's almost a little bit too much at times, I think. It's a little bit too on the nose. Yeah, the parallels are very clear, um, the lines that they're drawing to connect these guys. Um, but it is intentional, and I think that they really are, are, you know, as we've said over and over again, they're really interested in this idea of, of your people versus my people and yeah. what you're willing to do to protect the people that you feel are worth it. It's so weird, too, because I feel like our group is so much further behind us as the viewers because they still don't know that, you know, these are the prisoners, not the descendants. And I keep forgetting that they don't know because we've known since the end of last season um, or we, I guess, assumed. But like I basically we, we basically knew since the end of last season so like a whole year we've had this preparation of like these are the prisoners so when they talk about like oh these are just their descendants I'm it like takes me a second to kind of figure out what they're talking about see I didn't even hear that yeah I didn't hear it <laughs> at all I was like la di da and then you mentioned it and I was like wait they don't know yeah of course they don't know like of course they don't know of course but they like- don't know and I'm glad that the writers remembered yeah. that because I didn't <laughs> um they end up finding the bridge and the door is blown open. As Echo says, it looks like someone forgot their keys. And guys, Echo makes a joke. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. They're like giving her like characterization. She has a sense of humor. But it's like her sense of humor is so dry. Oh, it's and really so dry. perfect. I, ju- I just... And also Tazia Tellis, who plays Echo, delivers it in this deadpan like kind of way like really deep voice that she has it's so good oh my gosh it, and it is like another source of humor that we rarely get on this show I mean yeah. like we get 
funny the show has become less and less funny mm-hmm. i think as the seasons go on um for obvious reasons yeah um, <laughs> the darker they get the less funny they become but i do really like when they bring in these different sources of humor um and they're always trying to find different char- like characters that you would necessarily expect to be yeah. funny can be funny like obviously murphy is funny you know but he has that like dark streak and I yeah. think in the opposite way Echo is a really you know stoic she character. has a very practical sense of humor yeah <laughs> she's a very stoic character but you know she just nailed that line oh, and so it was great <laughs> uh Bellamy because he's Captain Obvious I can tell <laughs> Captain Obvious that's another <laughs> another captain for him Captain Daddy we can talk yeah. about later <laughs> but he's wearing a lot of Captain hats yeah. <laughs> this episode <laughs> Uh, Bellamy can tell that something bad happened here, but Raven and Monty don't care. They are much more concerned with getting to the computers, killing the alarm, and finding out where the ship keeps their hydrazine. But as Raven discovers, the ship doesn't actually run on hydrazine. It runs on hypholodium. Hypholodium. <laughs> hypholodium. Which I am now going to call a hefalump because hefalump. I can't say that word. It runs on hefalump, which they could use to land the pod if they want to explode every cell in their body. But as Monty realizes, they have a drop ship, so that means that they must have hydrazine. Just a few seconds more, and Raven has found the hydrazine and their way home. Um, and I wanted to note here, I was a little bit confused. Jason tweeted, and I didn't get the tweet, so I don't have a an exact quote, but I what he tweeted makes it sound like Murphy ad-libbed the captain's line chair, which was brilliant in every way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we just talked about how great Richard Harmon is at humor. I mean, it's like his his specialty as an actor yeah finding the humor in these really sort of tense moments um and he's just perfect in this so good and he does weirdly remind me of William Shatner who for those who don't know played Captain Kirk in the original Star Trek uh series he has this like sort of like like um not chauvinism what's the word um I honestly don't know what you're talking about William (laughs) Shatner has this sort of just sense of grandeur around yeah. him um we're, we're like he he feels like he's like he owns everything okay, like everything see belongs that. to him <laughs> and like murphy just kind of like owns the room you know like he just feels in- entitled is the word i was looking for. i can see the entitled but like with murphy's entitled it's like a salty entitledness like he doesn't really feel like it but he acts like it so i can see where that like swagger comes in but it's like fake swagger whereas like william shatner had like I mean, I wouldn't call it real swagger because he's ridiculous. I he love you, William ridiculous. Shatner, but you're ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> but I, he's just the greatest. William Shatner watches this show. He does. He <laughs> maybe also, that was a call out to him. So also, it maybe. Yeah. Maybe it could have been. I mean, it was definitely it. a call out to Star Trek. For well, yeah, sure. Um, but also, William Shatner is in this other show that's been off the air for many years, but it was Boston Legal. Um, <laughs> and it was great, guys. If you haven't, if you're like into like courtroom dramas. Boston Legal is the show for you. It is hilarious and ridiculous. It is beyond ridiculous. And William Shatner is the most William Shatner he has ever been in his entire career. And it is wonderful and hilarious and you should watch it. Who would have thought when we started watching The 100 that we would get off onto William Shatner tangents? Well, it's Star Trek, so I <laughs> would. I would true. have bet big money. Uh, it, he wasn't my favorite Star Trek captain, I'm just going to say. That. Yeah, we well, you know. You know. Picard, whatever. <laughs> I'm the Captain Picard fan. <laughs> He's my heart and soul. <laughs> So is Patrick Stewart. (laughs) That's Um, a whole other tangent. Yes, it is. Uh, Also, who wants to bet that the heffalump is going to become important later on? Because it's going to become important later on. Yeah. I I can't quite tell if that's what they were mining for. I mean, their, their ship runs on it, so they had to have it when they left um, for the asteroid or wherever the hell they went. Yeah. But 
that doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't also mining for it, but it doesn't mean that they were mining for it. They could have been mining for something else. We will get to that later. We shall see. Yes, twiddling <laughs> our fingers. Uh, Monty discovers that the Allegius crew also has laser comm. Uh, space crew's own radios were blocked by radiation, but Allegius had to cut through the worst uh, atmospheric conditions that was pretty much possible uh, when they were on their mission, and so they have stronger radios. And as they hear the Allegius crew over the radio, Murphy wants to talk to them, but Bellamy wants to first find out who they're dealing with. Um, and so we get some really convenient, super-powered radios suddenly that uh, makes everything okay, and they can they can use them again. Yeah, there's a little, like, hand-waving done here. It doesn't make (laughs) any sense to me at all. I know they have advanced technology, but whatever. I mean, like, it, like, logically makes sense to me, I guess, but also it's just... It's ridiculous. It's, it's very hand wavy. Like whatever. it's called laser calm. Like. Yeah, it's fine. Moving on. I do like that we see Bell, um, Bellamy exercising a little bit ca- more caution here. And again, he's taking Clark's words to heart and using his head. Yes. Um. Thankfully, so because I do. I do like watching him. You know, act out yeah. her last wishes. We did, we did not want to expose ourselves quite yet to the Allegius crew. They are uh, no. a rough bunch. No, we, we, need, we need some information. Yeah, we need some information. Uh, so we hear McCreary talking over the radio about tracking someone, and Raven realizes that Allegius must be hunting their people. Murphy is skeptical, but Bellamy is worried, as he usually is. Uh, after all, there was no one else on the ground, so they think. Uh, Echo reminds him that Octavia can handle it, and Raven dives into the computer systems to find out who they're dealing with. But really, though, are they really sure there's no one else on the ground? I'm really sure. You really don't think there is? Did you see that planet? I did see that planet, but, like, this is the 100. The mountain men survived in the mountain for, like, a 100 years. Like... I don't if there know. is another mountain somewhere, maybe I, there's more mountain men somewhere. They just like didn't even know there was an apocalypse outside because they were still in their mountain. I don't know. I feel pretty sure they're the last people on Earth. I mean, I hope they are because I would like them to go to a habitable planet, but that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I totally lost. Oh. I found my spot. <laughs> um, I also really like seeing Echo support Bellamy in this way. Um, she's, you know, saying, like, it's okay, like, we can figure it out, but also Octavia is capable enough to handle this. Like, you have to, like, give her her own agency. It's been six years. Please give her her own agency. Like, my God, man. And make her accept the consequences for her actions. Different story, different tangent. Um, but I, I really did like kind of seeing uh, a bit into their dynamic as – I wouldn't necessarily say a couple, but as a pair, if yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like a romantic look into their no. relationship. And I but think you and I have talked about this offline, um, about how when they're with the other group, Echo and Bellamy don't seem to be like, oh my gosh, super PDA. I have I have a tangent about this later. I will get into it. Okay. Um, later on. Okay. We will, we will table this yes. tangent for later. <laughs> Didn't know this was coming. Yeah. Interesting. It's coming. I okay. added it to the doc after we passed to that point. So <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Guys, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> was there anything else I wanted to talk about in this scene? Oh yes. I did want to note, um, that I like that while everybody is really worried about this, like, you know, sudden, arrival of these people on the ground that we didn't know about raven is like already five steps ahead of them and it's like all right we need to we need more information we don't know anything about them and i'm gonna find it when is raven not five steps no it's just like (laughs) amazing she's amazing and i adore her she is amazing they're all amazing (laughs) i love we do the podcast guys that's why we do the podcast 
Uh, Clark and Maddie are running, but Clark is clearly hurt, so she hides Maddie under a log, makes her promise to stay out of sight, and tells her she loves her. Then she leads the Allegis crew away. When was the last time we heard Clark say, I love you? And it wasn't just her saying, I love you, but the way she said it, it was so like plain and emotional um, uh, emotional and and she said it so unabashedly um i don't know if we've ever heard clark no talk like that no and her voice was it was just so thick with emotion i mean like you could feel it it almost brought me to tears i mean it it was a seriously good piece of acting but also just like as a character moment it it was both shocking it was really shocking to hear her mm-hmm. say that and there have been so many times in this series where she is about to say it and then res- yeah. and then stops herself and then I say it for her <laughs> um and I was thinking at the beginning of this like oh this would be a great moment for you to say I love you and then she said it and I was like oh my god <laughs> I can't did I imagine that like was I hallucinating Clark is the heart now yeah um but I I do think that the way that she says it, like she said it before to, I think Alexa and Finn. Yeah. She said it's both of them. Um, but that and was like, like, well, I'm, so I'm just saying, like, if you didn't watch the show and you just heard audio clips of her saying "I love you" to Alexa and Finn versus her saying "I love you" to Maddie, it's very clear which one is said in a romantic sense and which one isn't. Like the way that Clark says it she sounds like a parent you know yes yes that's exactly right it's like that that sort of like larger like, I, than desperate life desperate to protect you yeah, kind of thing this like this la- larger than life kind of emotional yeah. bond to somebody that is intrinsic to who you are yeah so props to eliza she give, really killed that line <laughs> give to eliza, and killed us all with it give eliza an emmy yes give eliza an emmy. <laughs> hashtag give eliza an i'm emmy gonna start the campaign now guys we have until september um, so Space Crew is listening over the radio as McCreary's men chase a girl and eventually capture her, a girl that McCreary says is a quote-unquote feisty one and pretty too. We, of course, know it's Clark, but it is clear that Bellamy is more worried that it's Octavia. Dioza tells McCreary to bring the prisoner to her, and that's it for Bellamy. They have to get down there to help. This is such a great use of dramatic irony. You know, it just, it builds in a bigger payoff to the reveal at the end, you know, when Bellamy and Clark reunite because we know it's coming. We know it's Clark. Yeah. But he doesn't. Um, It's just really smart. There's I a lot it. of dramatic irony in this episode. Yeah. They're, they're using it a lot, but this was a particularly good moment. And it's been six years, but nothing has changed. Bellamy is still on a mission to save his sister. He's going to, we're going to have to work on that. There's reckoning coming this well, season. Well, it's going to be a rough season for old Belle and Octavia. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah. that that is a Not the same sister we left behind. Not at all. Red well, not Queen. the same Bellamy either. No, definitely um, not. But again, that is for a later episode. <laughs> uh, so McCreary's men bring Clark to Dioza in the village. Zeke asks if they only caught one, and McCreary says they only saw one, but Zeke doubts she was alone. When Dioza asks Clark for information, Clark says nothing, and at her silence, McCreary hits her and Zeke turns away. Just another reason to love Zeke. Zekreary? Is that their their ship name? I feel like we make up ship names on the show all the time. What was the other one we said the other day? Oh, Melamy. You said it. Melamy. Oh, yeah. When we were um, doing this doc, I uh, was trying to say Bellamy, and I was also trying to say Murphy, and then I said Melamy, (laughs) which is... And that's their ship name. What is their, like, usual ship name? It's a... I don't know. They they have a ship name. It's not that. I don't remember. Burfy. <laughs> it's not Burfy. 
<laughs> it's Melamy now. Bourbon. No, that's no. It. I don't. <laughs> that's like. <laughs> well, they have a ship name. What is it? It's gonna drive me crazy. We'll have to look it up. Later. Okay. Well, it's from now on gonna be Melamy. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the way I'm thinking about it. And Zakiri. And Zakiri. And what was the one we did last season? Uh, Jane, <laughs> Kane, and uh, Jaha. Oh my God. Yeah, I forgot about that. Hurts a little bit now. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, McCreary, McCreary moves to hit Clark, but Dioza orders him to bring Clark to the church instead to talk. Zeke worries about Dioza using McCreary in an interrogation because Clark is the only lead they have about what happened to their planet. Dioza reminds him that Clark killed four of their people already, but Zeke notes that she only did it after they landed and took their village. So clearly Zeke is the pacifist of the bunch. Yeah, I mean, that's not saying much, but... <laughs> no, but, but it's drastic yeah <laughs> it's drastic how different he is from the rest of them agreed um and they're making great pains to show how different he is yes because which they I, are setting him up for an epic romance and he has to be good to be epic in this romance. romance he has to be the best possible version of a boy i ship it i ship it so hard <laughs> we'll get into that next episode <laughs> um, so also i wanted to note that i i do really like the way um that they they use the word people again here you know i think it could have really been easy for Dioza to refer to her as her men in like a military sense. Mm-hmm. But it's important to the show that they reinforce this idea of people like ours versus yours. So I really appreciated this like little insertion of that. Plus, I think it's equally as important to the show that um, we're in a post quote unquote men world now. Yeah. So, you know, the male isn't the default necessarily. I anymore. totally agree. Um, so people is a much more inclusive term, <laughs> isn't it? isn't it is it is <laughs> if we were on westworld they would have to be beings that's true i love a good being well no people doesn't necessarily mean human okay because they're like alien peoples so they are also robot peoples oh it's discussion for a different day that's a, a season seven discussion we think <laughs> once we get to a habitable planet the only thing left is robots <laughs> oh wait we've already done robots we've done ai yeah we did Allie. well she wasn't really a robot she was like a an apparition well, yeah. <laughs> She was all hologram. in their minds. That's what I was trying to say. She's a hologram. Uh, a crew member tells Dioza that there's an alarm on their ship, and Dioza tells her to follow security protocols and activate Kodiak, then asks good cop Zeke to come with her. So what did you think Kodiak was at this point? I didn't know. Like, my best guess was it had something to do with oxygen deprivation, but then I was like, how would that work? Because we know they're not going to die. I really, like, was... You know, just guessing at straws. Well, uh, not to toot my own horn, but I immediately knew Kodiak was a person and they were going to wake him up. I feel like I basically wrote this episode, guys. <laughs> not to toot your own horn. Not to toot my own horn, but I wrote this episode. Um, as far back as the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely knew that they would have to deploy the, the cryo men at one point. Release I, the Kraken. Right. Um, I just... D- didn't occur to me that Kodiak was a name. I quite like that name, though. I wish he didn't have to die. I like the name well, Kodiak. I would like your to first continue. child Kodiak. It's fine. I'll name our next succulent Kodiak. Oh my god! <laughs> we just got two new succulents. No, uh, we got our first well, succulents. Our, fu- our first succ. Well, they are also new, but they are our first succulents because we can't have pets. Um, so we got two. Uh, we named them Peggy and Earl. Like they are in a relationship. Um. So, yeah, we can have their child be Kodiak. Okay. I like that. <laughs> uh, totally lost my place. Okay. So, we are in the church. 
McCreary is tying up Clark and then he hits her again. Zeke moves to stop him and they fight. Diosa breaks it up and McCreary tells her that Zeke isn't one of them. And I'm patting myself on the back again. Uh, then they, they I'm lost. I'm rolling my eyes so hard. <laughs> they lost four men and Zeke doesn't even care. But Diosa says that Zeke is one of them because none of them would be here without him. But as McCreary says, none of them would be here without McCreary either. So first and foremost, Zeke is not a prisoner. He is a precious ray of sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> we have confirmation that he's not a bad guy. Yes. Um, but what did McCreary do that makes him consider himself so essential? I have also been wondering that. Um, uh, you know, he very clearly seems to lead the the quote-unquote army that they have. Right. The men are a little... They, they seem more loyal to McCreary than to Dioza, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um. So I don't know if it's just that he was able to kind of corral the men for Dioza. Yeah, I mean, like, it could be just, like, his political position with them, yeah. that they're more loyal to him. But from this, it sounds like there is some, there was some crucial action that he, like, yeah. did to solidify their position or, like, can you know, like, make sure that they succeeded in their re- revolution or whatever you want to call it. Maybe he's the one who blew up the engine. Maybe. I mean, but that we doesn't know, feel like something that only he could have I done. I know. Well, we do know that he killed the doctor. Um, yeah, but that just seems like he was, you know, he yeah, was mad he just, at like, the got doctor. a little overzealous. Yeah. I think he's got overzealous. <laughs> that was an accident. Um, I, I do want to note that McCreary is not how I imagined him from teasers that we got from this season. I kind of thought he would come in as this just like total psychopath. Um, but he's not. Like, he clearly is a sadist, but he also you know cares about his men he was upset that they got killed so i don't know i'm at this weird point with him where everyone else in the fandom seems to be like oh mccreary's so bad and scary and i'm like well is not he, all of the fandom there's a large population of the fandom that find him very attractive oh well <laughs> he is very attractive that was never like a they're a like into him oh well that's a little bit disturbing <laughs> yeah. um I did not know that. That's a dark side of the internet that you're going to, but <laughs> just it I shows mean, up, guys. He is a very attractive man. I mean, like I, I am not he attracted. Is very much my type. But I, am I am not, not attracted, attracted to, to McCreary as a character, um, but he's a very attractive man. <laughs> he is a very attractive man, and he is a sadist. Um, that is very true. Um, and I don't. I know you and I disagree about this, but I feel like some of his comments and some of his looks toward Clark. It makes me think that he, like, gets off a little bit torturing people, like, in a sexual way. I, I know that you're not seeing it, but... I don't not see it. I don't necessarily see like, it. But the fact I, like, that, like, his first description of her is, like, she's pretty, too. That, like, he had to include that. Yeah. Not that, she, you know, as, like, a descriptive, but, like, clearly, like, it was his opinion. Yeah. And, like, the way that he... I don't know. He, like, looks her up and down, and, like, when he's torturing her, he's, like biting his lip it's weird guys and I it creeps me out I miss the biting of the lip but I mean like I I I do think that I mean I do think he gets off on torturing people I don't know if it's like a sexual get off or like just like a yeah (laughs) a mental get off I don't know no uh, (laughs) and I I, I'm not guessing it it's so subtle at this point that I wouldn't think of it as gonna it's I don't feel like it's gonna come into play as like a plot point yeah um but it it's just like a little bit of shading into his character that he's even more gross but I am waiting for like the the horror of McCreary that we were promised from the teasers um haven't quite got it yet 
I, like he's not a good person, but I can't wait to see these guys finally square off. I mean, they are which chomping guys? at the bit. Zeke and oh, Zeke and, and McCreary. McCreary. Well, McCreary is very clearly um, what's the word I'm looking for against Zeke? Zeke like makes him feel inadequate inadequate yeah. yeah and i think zeke is disgusted by mccurry well, yeah and they just hate each other because zeke is a right and they sunshine. are gonna come to a boiling point and square off at some point i'm yeah. really excited to watch that happen but more so than that there are some hidden i don't know if i'd call them depths to mccurry but there's there's some hit there's some secrets to there's his backstory deep pools we haven't gotten yeah. all the way to the bottom so Dioza tells McCreary that they all have a role to play and commands them to take a team and sweep for more of Clark's people. When she turns back to Clark, she sees Clark is bleeding black blood. Zeke notes that she just had that she's had blood alteration, just like they had on Allegius three when they went somewhere with two sons. Dioza realizes that that must be how they survived on an irradiated planet, and she asks for a med kit to Clark's surprise. Um, so first off, a little bit more humanizing of Dioza. You know, first she asks for a med kit for the guy who was impaled, which, honey, <laughs> don't know what you thought you were going to do there. You're literally um, beating a dead horse. But but Clark was certainly surprised that Dioza cared enough to fix her up and stop the blood. Um, I don't know if it, that was Dioza's intention. but <laughs> No, I think, yeah, I think, it, I mean, for, for starters, I, I don't think she wanted Clark to bleed out. But I do think that <laughs> she could have been manipulating Clark, you know, yeah. just like setting her off guard just enough so that she slips, which Clark does slip. Yeah. Um, so again, it's very, very smart of Dioza. <laughs> Um, but on to the important part of this section, and that is that Elegius Four does not have Nightblood. Um, so all of those theories, I'm pouring them down the drain right now. I'm also a little heartbroken. I was I was very much into this this headcanon um, and had a lot of theories writing on it. That's fine. That's cool. <laughs> it's early in cool, the cool, season. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> um, and the other thing that we learn is that I mean there is quite obviously an Allegius three and they went to a planet with two sons. I don't want to say too much about this yet, but I will talk about it next episode because we get a little bit more about it. Um, but I'm just saying very excited, very excited about Allegius three. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I am excited that there is more than one Allegius. Oh yeah. Like, there's four, this, but this I think brand new information. I think Allegius three is really the only important Allegius mission. Oh, I agree. aside from the Allegius, yeah, the mission. one that we have yeah. right now. Yeah. So Diosa tells Clark that they got off on the wrong foot. They didn't know anyone was alive down here when they were just trying to get back home, but to their surprise, there was no home to get back to. Diosa was upset when Clark's people started killing hers, naturally, just like Clark was upset when they took her village. Diosa says that when the fascist government tried to take her home, she wanted blood too, and she got it. So, um, yeah. Diosa is scary and very enigmatic, and I want to hear everything that she says <laughs> listening to her talk in this little speech was so reminiscent um of the way that space crew felt in season one and their pov in season one mm -hmm. it was like so such a stark um comparison of the ta how the tables have turned it was just it was just like a holding up a mirror to your face i mean it was really obvious and it was it was a very striking contrast, I felt. There was something about the line that she says, uh, in particular, that the fascist government tried to take her home. She wanted blood and she got it. That was so riveting to me. Like, the way she said it, it was so... I want to use the word seductive, but I don't mean it in a sexual sense. I mean it, like... Yeah. Just in a, a very, like, alluring it's sense. Appealing, yeah. Like, I, I wanted to, to know more about her. 
And I want to know, like, where the hell is she from? What happened to her to turn her into this person? It's a great question. And I I wonder if at some point we're going to get, like, a Dioza-centric episode where we get, like, an info dump on her. Please. I would love that. I mean, I don't foresee them doing any, like, Lost-type flashbacks. No. No. Where we go back and, But I I do feel like if we spend, like, maybe if we get an episode where we spend, like, a significant amount of time with her, which I think is possible, um, we can get some, like, major backstory. Actually, I'm, like, rewinding this a little bit. It is possible we could see a flashback of her back on regular Earth unlikely but like I the reason we haven't had one yet is because there hasn't been anyone to flashback to who actually was alive on on earth before the apocalypse yeah. um i think it's more likely we'll get a flashback to like when they were on the the mining mission uh, before the rebellion but i hope we at least get that i, I would, would like just, to get some backstory i would like a dioza centric episode yeah well i mean i would like a dioza centric show i'm <laughs> a spinoff <laughs> oh my god a prequel <laughs> spinoff I don't want a prequel spinoff. I just want like a Dioza spinoff. I want her to like go do her own thing. I want her to join the 100. Well, I do want her to join the 100, but I feel like that probably won't happen. Well, if Octavia is the big bad this season, then that leaves room for Dioza to become an ally. That's true. That's true. But I still, I feel like Dioza's pretty far gone. Like she, in terms of the kind of person that she is. I have to believe that she can come back. This is the wrong show. <laughs> People don't come back in this show. You just keep going. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So Dielsa tells Clark that no one else needs to die as long as Clark tells them what they want to know. But Clark says nothing. Zeke says that she might not speak English, but Dioza knows she does and just wants them to think she doesn't so that, she'll speak, so that they'll speak freely and she can find something to use against them. As Dioza noticed, Clark looks at the radio every time someone speaks. She's tracking their movements. This revelation of her strategy all along was so satisfying to me. Dioza is the adversary we've been waiting for, for Clark. She's somebody who is clearly Clark's equal in like every way, who can challenge her and win sometimes oh, against yeah. her, often, so far. And it's just thoroughly entertaining to see her take Clark on they are so evenly matched and honestly this scene I think we tweeted about it no this is a scene that this is what Jason retweeted our our one shining moment one of glory. shining moment of glory <laughs> um but this scene changed my life that I mean every single thing about their face off even though Clark didn't talk just like watching those two like battle of wills some silently some verbally it was just so good it was everything I've ever wanted to see from two female characters I know it's like what a blessing it is to have a scene with these two incredibly beautifully dimensional female characters that are this well written you know with this much like electric chemistry their dynamic is so interesting yeah and well done you know we're just very like this This is just amazing television. I mean, say what you will about the show. I know that there are a lot of complaints against it, but you can never say that it doesn't blow the Bechdel test out of the water because it does. It does. (laughs) It makes the Bechdel test look sexist. Yeah. (laughs) Which some people argue that it is. So, uh, but also Clark could have been a little bit more subtle with her like glance. Oh my God. It's like so so annoying to it was me. a little it was almost cartoonish the way yeah. she was doing it it was very unlike Clark yeah and it it was like what are you doing 
She's out of practice. That's true. She hasn't had to sharpen her wits for She's a long just, time. Like, <laughs> really, really desperate for me. Yeah. Uh, Diosa says it's fine that she doesn't want to talk, but she wonders if that'll change when they find who Clark is protecting. Diosa then tells her soldiers to shoot to kill. And this is the first time in this scene uh, that we really see some emotion from Clark's face. Um, you really see her, her, her like muscles tighten in her face. Yeah, I mean, this is the first time that she's been outsmarted in a really long time. <laughs> she's like lost her upper hand, and I don't think she's used to it. I mean, no. she's she's just as shocked as we are that like she's found an opponent in Dioza and she's been underestimating her but she won't do it again yeah I don't think Clark has ever come up against someone who is as equally matched as her and I mean that in a way that I think there are characters in the show who have been great foils for Clark right but Clark has never met another Clark right um and Dioza is like another Clark but like on steroids (laughs) it's Clark in 20 years yeah um so that's just a really interesting interaction to see I loved it yeah uh, Monty and Murphy are carrying the hydrazine to the docking bay. Murphy says that this place gives him the creeps. Same, bro. Uh, <clears throat> and Echo tells him that he's afraid of an empty ship when he should be more worried about what's waiting for them on the ground. Um, so Echo, ever the soldier. <laughs> Always. But I do like that this is humanizing for Echo. You know, we see that she's uncomfortable with the idea of returning to the ground because of her banishment and, you know, what that will mean for her when they all get down there. And I think this is something that the other, you know, um, the other members of sky crew like don't really have to worry about and Mm -hmm. i think it's something that she's never going to forget oh absolutely um and something that she won't be able to forget because they are going back to the ground and things are gonna get messy yep yes they are murphy notes that he can worry about more than one thing at a time it's called multitasking (laughs) which was honestly one of the best lines of this show so great Echo, for one, is glad that the old Murphy is back and she's missed his stupid little jokes. And guys, Echo loves them so much. Like, she's trying to play it off, but she loves them. Yeah, she does. <laughs> she does. She's part of their family. And I, I just, like, imagine, like, Bellamy and Echo, like, taking turns babysitting Murphy, <laughs> comparing, like, their little therapy notes after a session with him. Like, what kind of progress have we made today? In one of the Tazia's uh, interviews... The most hilarious thing, basically her and Richard came up with the headcanon that Murphy kind of like adopted Echo as his therapist and he would like follow her around like complaining about his problems and Echo wouldn't say a single word and Murphy would eventually like talk himself around to right. a solution and then like, leave. Like talk, <laughs> yeah. <you> so much. <laughs> and I just, I want that to be true so badly. Headcanon adopted. <laughs> Accepted. <laughs> like that is canon now. <laughs> Um, Monty doesn't want Echo to encourage Murphy, but Murphy tells Monty that he just misses his algae farm, that he would rather stay on the ring than go back to the ground. Monty doesn't argue because, of course, he would rather stay in a place where they're safe, well-fed, have plenty of water, and people that they love. Murphy tells him not to kid himself. They've been stuck in the metal tube for 2,201 days, but as Echo says, who's counting? Again, cracks me up. Echo's funny. (laughs) It's like... Yeah. She has a sense of humor. It's like this episode. This specific episode has done more to help me understand and like and love Echo than every single past episode combined. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I definitely appreciate her more after this episode. And I feel like contextually it makes sense that Space Crew would have rubbed off on her over the last six years. I mean, I don't appreciate her more. I am obsessed with Echo. (laughs) I I am a newly minted Echo stan. (laughs) I feel like I liked, I was more interested in her 
maybe than you were. So like I've always peaked. She's always really piqued my interest. No, I was always interested in her. I just didn't feel like they were giving me the kind of um, depth and movement that I wanted to see from her. Then we again came to find out that I think it's just a longer arc. Um, and now that she's kind of developed into this person and we're able to see her in kind of like a, a home life versus yeah. like a war life. Yeah, that's true. I mean, she's this is the first time that she can let her go down and be vulnerable with people mm-hmm. um, than we've ever seen. And so we get this whole extra layer of her that we just wasn't available to us before. Like Echo's never told a joke before and she like cracks off several in this yeah, episode. Yeah, she's got three as far as I'm counting. <laughs> So, my new fave, Echo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where were we? We keep losing our place in this, <laughs> in this because I just keep wanting to ramble about Echo and, and habitable planets. <laughs> it's the story of my life. Uh, Monty tells Murphy that while the rest of Space Crew are working to make life better for themselves, Murphy did nothing and ended up pushing Amori away because she learned a skill that made her more useful than him. Murphy and Monty almost come to blows, with Monty calling Murphy useless and Murphy calling Monty a coward, but before the fight can go any further, Echo calls them over. She's found something. A room full of cryopods. Finally, they are catching up to us. The prisoners are still there. The pods are... um, all full, mostly full, uh, and there are about 300 of them. I really like um, that Monty is standing up for himself here and serving Murphy a little bit of a taste of his own medicine. Um, I feel like, like we've said, Murphy has this acuity to like pinpoint your weakness, but Monty is like really zeroing in on Murphy's greatest fear, which is being expendable as well. I mean, I think that's what why he and Amori were so drawn to each other because they were outsiders when they met. Um, so this this punch really, really hits home for Murphy. And, and he's, he's very, very deeply uncomfortable with this analysis that Monty is, is giving him. Not to, like, hate on, Mur- or on Monty, because I don't, but I don't think Monty was being particularly insightful here. I think that every single person on that ship knows how Murphy feels and knows what his, like, one like you know yeah poking point is i mean bellamy in episode one was like say you're not useless say <laughs> that you love yourself <laughs> that is a good point but i just mean that i feel like in previous in previous seasons monty would not have stuck up for himself as, oh great i think that like watching monty grow into this more assertive person is really interesting and watching him interact with these characters who have really like taken the mick out of him before and watching him give it back is really satisfying and I'm interested in watching him become even stronger and conversely my girl Echo is just very much like eyes on the prize she's not here for this fighting um she goes ahead and like finds the cryopods without them uh and I also really like the subtle touch that they're still explaining to Echo all of these tech concepts because you know I forget that she didn't grow up with it, so it's it's kind of a nice reminder that she's still a grounder. Yeah, it's excellent continuity. I mean, like these are like the tiny little details that make this show so exemplary, and it's just, you know, excellent. Yeah, it's excellent. <laughs> Monty's stunned, but Murphy and Echo pull him away and head back to the docking bay. As they leave, the camera pans over to the first sleeping prisoner, and we see his name is Kodiak. I just love that the show gives us these clues and lets us figure things out, you know, before they show us what 
you know, all of the pieces are going to turn into. Like it's, they trust us to be smart enough to pick these things up and put them together on our own. And I, when there's so much television out there that just sort of is like dumbed down for the lowest common denominator. And I really love a show that challenges you and makes you think and expects their audience to be intelligent and smart and capable. And I love it. Yeah, I mean, that's why we podcast for this show. Yeah. We wouldn't if it, if it weren't that kind of show. Yeah, but it's also, like, worth pointing out now and again. Oh, like, the mechanics of this because it is really smart. Um, but I have a very serious question. What? Is there an animated bear named Kodiak in some movie? No, there is an animated bear named Koda in Coda. Brother Bear. Brother Bear. Oh my gosh, it was driving me crazy. Every time that name came up, I was like, Bear? <laughs> Why didn't you just ask me? I just did. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think that was? I thought you meant that this had been driving you crazy for a week. Well, it, I mean, like, it hadn't been, like, consciously driving me crazy. It was, like, a subconscious Could have just twitch. eased your suffering, but that's <laughs> fine. Back at the docking bay, Amori tells Harper that all systems check, no thanks to her. Harper says that it was her first time at the controls and urges her not to beat herself up over it. Amori reveals that she kicked out Murphy because he never did anything to help them get home, but when it really mattered, she was the one who almost got them all killed. But Amori uh, thinks that, but Harper uh, thinks that uh, Amori might be able to give Murphy a second chance too. I'm still, like, not 100% sure how I feel about Harper. I do think that they are making strides in the right direction toward her character, but I just am still a little bit underwhelmed by her. I feel like this, you know, attempt at um, comforting her was, like, it felt a little insincere to me. Not that it was supposed to be. I just don't know that it came off or was executed exactly the way that I wanted it to be. I think this is one of the first times that you and I diverge on Harper because I really liked the scene. I think my my major issue with Harper um, in previous seasons, but especially last season, was all of her arc tended to revolve around um, Monty, Monty or yeah. like it was really Monty. It was like really last season because she wasn't a huge character in previous seasons. Um, and I, I wanted her to like have more of an arc outside of him. And so I really loved seeing this interaction between these two women who we've never seen really interact before but who've clearly had these last six years to become close friends and I I liked seeing that support from them with no men around no I agree from a technical point of view I think you're absolutely right and I see the intention behind it I just don't know that I felt the chemistry I did I I really actually liked Harper in this scene well that's good I'm I'll Um, I'll, I'll give him a break yeah hopefully Harper will get there for you too I mean I do I just I feel so bad for Amari in this scene I mean, like, she she really thinks that she's just as useless as Murphy. I mean, she can't see that the, like, crucial difference here is that Murphy doesn't try and she does. Like, that's a big difference, honey. <laughs> and I just, like, it's so painful to watch it. I love her. And I do, you know, we'll, we probably won't see any flashbacks to um, their time on the arc. Or if we do, it'll be very, very minimum. Um, but I... I don't think it's necessarily that Murphy doesn't try. I think Murphy's self-confidence in space, I think it it kind of brought back all of the trauma of his past and the things that he had to do to survive and things that his parents did to keep him alive um, really weigh on him in space. He, he's a fighter and he's a survivor and those are his skills. Like he is incredibly useful. He's like, you, you want, 
very few people on your team before you want Murphy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I, I just think that, like, this is not an environment that is suited to him. I, I don't think, like, I, I don't think he's mentally even able to to try, if that makes any sense. I don't think it's, like, he doesn't want to try, but it's, like, he can't do it. Oh, I agree. I mean, he needs major therapy. But as far as Amori's psychology in this scene, I think she looks at him like he isn't trying. Oh, for sure. And, and he can't overcome his own um weaknesses and she can I mean she also came from a super traumatized background and past and she is able to take those experience and use them in a constructive way and he isn't and I think she holds it against him and it makes her really self-conscious when she feels like she's losing this battle like he is and it's such an interesting juxtaposition between the two of them because I think Amori her entire life you know, she was kicked out of her home um, at a very early age. We don't really know how young, but very early and had to kind of survive on her own. Um, and basically survival kind of revolved around being useful um, to herself and to other people. Um, and But she never had the, the chance to become part of a family like this. And yeah. the fact that she's been given this chance, she's like approached it wholeheartedly um, because, you know, she's found a family who will actually accept her and, and she gives all of herself to them as well. Um, whereas Murphy, I think she's a little pissed, not just that he won't try, but that he takes for granted that these people accept him no matter what. And he keeps pushing them away where she's like, this is what I've always wanted. And you're just throwing it, it away. Yeah. You're spitting on it. Um, so I think that's a lot of what her kind of subconscious issues are as well. Yeah, yeah. She's angry at him for multiple reasons, yeah. and we see them clash over and over again. So Murphy, Monty, and Echo show up at the docking bay, saying it's time to go. Echo tells them that she's going to go back to warn Bellamy and Raven, and Harper is understandably worried about this. Murphy asks Amori if she was talking about him. <laughs> uh, but Amori doesn't want him to flatter himself. And then she asks them what's going on. I mean, he's just hopeless. He, <laughs> he cannot help himself. And, oh, God, he just, he always, he just makes things worse. And Amori is fed up with him. I mean, like, it, it's, we've talked about this a lot already. But, yeah. It's I mean, you want to shake him because he is very obviously still in love with her. And he just, he, he just wants her attention. He'll do and say whatever it takes to get it. And, and he, and everything that he does is not the right way to go about things. It's not, like, a way that she is receptive to right now. Um, but he, like, can't help himself. Yeah, she is done. She Ugh. has no more tolerance for him. And he is just shredding her patience. I mean, like, I think she has no more tolerance for him. But she also still is clearly, like, deeply in love and attracted to his personality still. Oh, yeah. And that's she's, like, not trying away. not to be. She's <laughs> trying not to be. But, but I, I think that makes her mad, or more I mad. Know. You know, she like is she. I think she resents the fact that she is still attracted to him, yeah. and still loves him, and that he like can't get his shit together. I mean, she's it's a hot mess, guys. This is it toxic. Is. They need space. <laughs> I've had like a growing attraction uh, to Murphy for quite oh a few god. seasons she must now. Have said like a hundred times when we were taking notes, like, oh my god, he's so hot. I'm just like very, very. I mean, like. He is a little shit, but I'm very attracted to that right now. <laughs> he, he is a little shit, but he's also really attractive. He is really attractive. And he's been attractive. And he's just so obnoxious. This is not <laughs> new information. <laughs> 
Back in the control room, Raven and Bellamy are going through the computer database. It seems like every prisoner on the ship was a murderer. Bellamy is nervous, but Raven reminds him that his great-great-grandpappy was an astronaut with four PhDs, while Bellamy has none. Uh, our ancestors don't make us who we are, and of course, Raven thinks that they're still dealing, dealing with descendants and not the actual prisoners, which again, I keep forgetting. Me too. <laughs> And I love this little piece of Blake trivia, and I'm um, convinced that their great-great-grandpappy was a super attractive space astronaut. I mean, he would have had to be. I mean, I can't even imagine how attractive he would have Bellamy been. clearly came from great genes. Yeah. So. <laughs> He's like a god himself, so. But this does bring up an interesting question to me. Um, I, so we do know that when the arc um, came together as one arc versus, like, the 13 Unity Day. Uni- yeah, Unity Day. Um, all of these people were astronauts. They were scientists. So I'm curious how jobs and roles on the Ark, once it um, united, how they were chosen. Like, who? Wh- why were some people chosen to lead and some people chosen to be the janitors, you know? Like, how, how did that initially happen where all of these, like, four PhD scientists, you know, kind of slowly started to, over the generations... Um, delineate themselves much more into a social structure, one that has very, very clear differences between, like, the highest points and the lowest points. Yeah, I think over time, I'm sure there must have been some correlation between, like, hierarchy and the chain of command and then, like, the social stratifications that came from it, but I'm sure that capital punishment or some kind of criminalization record or something affected their social standing I mean what would make most sense to me would be some sort of like standardized testing situation where kids are placed where they're most useful but that's not what we see when we come to the arc it's like you do what your parents do which makes no sense whatsoever it's not a smart way to handle things I mean it there is upward mobility we see Raven is so ambitious and strives so hard to make a better life for herself than where she came from so we know it's possible to like overcome those social stratifications I just think that I'm assuming that it must have something to do with criminal behavior and you're like in at like the early stages of their social standing that they like were punishing families for criminal behavior and they were getting like menial labor work and then over time you know that's with like the, the criminal system that we have now like it breeds more injustice and more criminal behavior so yeah I'm I'm thinking that's probably what happened but I still think so the then system. it begs the question what did great great grandpappy Blake do <laughs> well it might not have been him it might have been like his son or well, his like, daughter right. I know but it's in the genes man <laughs> <laughs> our genes don't make who we are <laughs> uh, Raven finds the captain's log and the last entry is dated from more than a hundred years ago they play it the captain comes on the screen he's clearly flaz- fra- flazzled frazzled and says that the ship has been compromised the prisoners found out about order 11 and they used an explosion in the starboard engine bay as a distraction bum, bum, bum. what is order 11 <laughs> what is it i don't know i don't know what is it uh my best guess is that the prisoners um finished their mission and or or were like finishing up their mission and found out that when they were done they would be killed or experimented on or left there. I, I feel like it, it had to be something that affected the prisoners specifically because the way that the captain phrases it is that they, they rioted after they found out about the order. So, like, it was like the order made them rebel. Right, had been given. 
Well, no, not that the order was given, that they found out that there was going to be this order that was given um, that they didn't like. <laughs> it was a leak. A leak. Um, and I just, I want to know, so, I mean, we're going to find gonna out find what it out. is. We're going to find out, yeah. But I'm You do so, not throw out an order 11 without following up on it. I'm so curious. Um, my, be- my best guess is that it was something that would threaten the lives or the well-being of the prisoners. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I can also see Zeke being opposed to that amount of death yeah and that's another maybe- question too about when and why did zeke join them but yeah. that's something we can talk about next a little episode. a little bit later um also did they use the hethelodium to cause the explosion I- i'm curious if that is kind of how it comes into play or if it's still going to have more of a of possibly a later on possibly maybe it'll just explode bit. more yeah. things later on <laughs> In the video, the door to the bridge is blasted open. As the prisoners pour in, the captain says that most of the crew is already dead and the prisoners are taking the bridge. He failed at disabling the cryo, but with the de- with the engine damage, it'll still take them decades decades <laughs> to make it home. He says that if the prisoners manage to make it back to Earth, they have to blow Dioza out of the sky because she cannot be allowed to weaponize the cargo. And as he said that said this, Dioza cuts his throat. So I guess we know what the hephalodium hephalump. I'm gonna call it a hephalump. I guess we know what the hephalump is is gonna how it's gonna play out because I feel like this is what he's talking about. Or yeah, I think that we are supposed to think that the cargo that they're mentioning is the hephalodium, but I am super super skeptical. I think it might be a red herring. I think the car uh, the cargo could be something that they found while they were on their mining trip mm. that they didn't expect. Um, something that has kind of dire consequences for earth my major thought at this point i still we talked about um back at when we were watching the trailer and there was that like bug or whatever in that guy's Ugh. stomach um we thought it might be number one some kind of like machine that was engineered like a weapon that um they engineered on the Allegius ship i think that's where we landed but the other idea was it was like a radioactive like Bug. creature from earth but what if they found something like this on the asteroid like or whatever else bug. they were they were mining and and what if that is what the cargo is maybe um, I mean, that's just one theory it definitely could be i mean i think you're right and that this probably is a red herring um but i know for a fact that the hephalump is coming into effect <laughs> at some point this episode we're getting a major explosion yeah i just i just hope that that isn't what they mean by when they say the cargo because if if they really meant just the hethalodium we already know about it so they could have just said she can't be allowed to weaponize the hethalodium but they specifically said weaponize the cargo and made it a little bit more mysterious yeah so I, that I could hope, be a bit of misdirection you're i right. hope that it is something that we either haven't thought of or just something, you know, different than the, the we obvious. We'll find out. Dioza tells Zeke that the bridge is his. Zeke isn't pleased. Dioza told him that she wasn't going to kill anyone. But Dioza said that she hasn't been killing people. And we clearly see that McCreary is doing the dirty work for her. Dioza tells Zeke that he did the quote-unquote right thing and she won't forget it. Um, so the right thing is really odd phrasing to me. Yeah. Because... In, in, like, one scenario, they were rebelling, they caught Zeke, and he joined their side because he didn't want to die. But I feel like she wouldn't have said the right thing in that situation. I feel like she would have said the smart thing. But by saying the right thing, it kind of lends itself to the idea that there was 
a wrong thing. Right. They're, they they had some moral high ground yeah. to be operating with. I agree. I I don't know what Zeke's options were, and I, I don't know exactly what ultimately swayed him to Dio's aside, but it's clear that something did. Yeah. That there was a choice, and he felt like this was the right thing to do. And what I'm really curious about was when did he join them? Was it before they rebelled, or did he you know, join them after? I'm, I'm kind of wondering if maybe he helped them rebel like my one thought is like maybe he is the one who discovered what order 11 was and kind of decided that it decided that he was going to help them because he wasn't morally okay with it um i don't know if zeke is that kind of person i guess we'll find out but that that's one one of my my theories i like that theory i hope that's true yeah i like zeke (laughs) zeke (laughs) not miles not sure not not sure uh in the video, Dioza notes a best dad in the universe cup in the background, and Bellamy sees it's still there a hundred years later. Then Dioza turns off the captain's log. Raven's confused by the captain saying he was trying to deactivate Cryo, but before she can follow that thought any further, Bellamy is suddenly attacked by Kodiak, who is huge. <laughs> uh, Bellamy and Raven fight him, with Echo soon jumping in to help, but Kodiak is still standing after Echo stabs him. Still, before Kodiak can go after Echo, Bellamy comes up behind him and chokes him to death as Bellamy has wont to do in many situations. Uh, and as Raven says, one down, 299 to go. Yeah, I don't know what the significance is about it, but the 100 writers, they sure do love the number 300. Yeah, they're not subtle. <laughs> no, no. If if there is a moral quandary about whether or not to kill 300 people, it's more than likely going to come up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when they're whenever they're like, we have to kill some people. How many people should we kill? Eh, about three hundred sounds know, good. About three hundred. <laughs> that sounds right. Give or take. Yeah, you know, minus one or two. Yeah. Um, I do love Echo fighting in this scene. I think we have talked about how she's a little bit softer here. She has some humor, but it's nice to see that like the old Echo isn't gone, and she is very much still the same person. And she is badass. Oh, she's a badass. She kicks butt. But. Conversely, the Kodiak is also a badass, and it makes me wonder, are the prisoners, or at least Kodiak, supercharged in some way, or is he just, you know, just like a really big, strong guy? I had the same thought. It's like he seemed singularly focused on violence. I know these are really violent criminals, but he, like, didn't even stop to ask for directions. He just, like, got up and, like, tried to kill them, like... It seemed like he was like a zombie almost. He did almost act like a zombie. I think part of it is just because he had his orders. He knew what he was supposed to do. And there were interlopers on the bridge. And he I was mean, carrying out his orders. I just would have been really lonely. These guys don't seem particularly threatening to me. Well, I don't, I mean, like, I don't think he's lonely because he's been in cryosleep, so he's not really been alone. I know. But, like, he I could mean, have made friends. He did act almost like a zombie and just like a single-minded determination to kill them yeah it was very strange and he didn't speak once no um so weird and maybe we'll find out more about that later but maybe just putting it putting a pin in that too we were going with the theory of them like medically experimenting on them yeah like well yeah i mean that's that's the question um we know that they experimented on allegius three uh and gave them black blood but I'm also assuming that something happened to Allegius Four. I don't know what it was. We'll also talk about this later on <laughs> in the next episode. Um, but we, we've definitely theorized before that 
there's something not right with the Allegis yeah, prisoners. Yeah, I, I get like a weird like Dr. Frankenstein vibe up here. Yeah. Spidey sense is tingling. <laughs> so they are in the cryo room looking over the pods. Echo says that she would have thought this was all magic not too long ago. And at that, Raven quotes Arthur C. Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I just love this quote. You know, I think it perfectly encapsulates how this show integrates magic and faith with technology and their efforts to sort of compare and contrast those two like philosophies and and ideologies and and how they interact with one another I just this is a brilliant quote and it's like so perfectly astute in this moment I mean I love this quote because I just love the idea that there's so much out there that we don't understand and it's not because it doesn't have an explanation it's just because we aren't capable of understanding it yet um and there's just there's a lot there's a lot out there in the universe guys. This is also a perfect example of how <laughs> McCabe and I think Bert is like let's uh analyze this let me open up my English textbook here and I'm like oh aliens <laughs> yeah she's like ooh space and I'm like but there's so many feelings <laughs> Uh, Bellamy questions how long the cryo-sleeping prisoners can survive like this, and Raven says they technically could live forever. Murphy appears with the idea to kill all the prisoners right now. Echo fills Murphy in, telling him that one of the prisoners woke up, and Bellamy wants to know how. But Murphy, on the other hand, wants to know what they're waiting for. They should kill the army and go home. Bellamy tells him that's not an option. If they kill the prisoners, the Allegis crew will kill their own people. Yes, very important to pay attention to when the name of the episode is spoken in the episode. <laughs> Murphy says, the sleeping army, and ding, ding, ding. We are yes. here. They, I mean, like, the cryo-sleeping prisoners are very, very much the sleeping giants. Yes. That's one um, reference. But I actually also was wondering, uh, I don't remember what the exact definition of a sleeping giant, but it's just something that has had unknown power or is coming into its power and I I wonder if the real sleeping giant of this episode is the Allegis Corporation and they're like shadowy backgrounds um and the things that the Allegis Corporation has done to either ensure the survival of humanity or just to explore the universe yeah I really really like that theory I like that interpretation a lot I hope so because it lends into my habitable planet theory I, <laughs> I take it back I take it back <laughs> uh Raven says the pods are all jacked into the mainframe so they can activate the pods remotely from the ground which means they must have done uh, the the Legis crew must have done so in response to the alarm as Echo notes when Kodiak doesn't check in they'll just wake more of them Ergo Murphy's plan to get the hell out. Echo tells Bellamy that she knows how he feels, but leaving these soldiers behind is a strategic mistake. Again, I sound like a broken record, but I love the way Echo thinks, and I love the perspective that she brings and her experience, her military experience and strategy is is really valuable here. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about last season, you know, what um, point of view she'd bring to the space crew. Uh, and she'd be bringing the grounder point of view, whereas most of them were bringing like a a, a nice crew. comfy sky crew point of view. Um, and 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 even you know, Amori has a very different. She doesn't have quite the traditional grounder point of view, whereas Echo does. Yeah. Um, and I think this is one of those those perfect examples of how Echo brings in this different perspective that no one else really thinks about. Yeah. Yeah, she's been dealing with opposing armies and sab- espionage and sabotage like her whole life. Yeah. She she's got 
she's got her she's a dead ringer for what's going on here she is in her element yeah bellamy says they've only been off the ring for an hour and they're already talking about murdering hundreds of people that is the show (laughs) (laughs) welcome to the hundred bellamy uh but murphy says it's not murder it's survival they either kill the prisoners now or the prisoners kill them later and if clark were here this wouldn't even be a discussion this riles bellamy up because clark is not here (laughs) uh murphy reminds him that clark died so they can live and this is how they do that this is a perfect example of how slytherin murphy is and how gryffindor bellamy is they are like quintessential slytherin and gryffindors yeah, you know, we I've definitely heard headcanon that Bellamy is a Gryffindor, or is a Slytherin, um, and to each their own, because this is all very much up to interpretation, but my headcanon is, and the headcanon that I kind of accept in terms of which house you belong to, is that the what you do isn't really as important as the why you do it. I completely agree with this. And while I do think that Bellamy at times can display some Slytherin characteristics but even still I don't think he really displays that many of them um he's always doing it in this like idea of like the greater good and like saving his people and like I think Bellamy is really altruistic yeah in in like his heart of hearts even if he gets defensive or scared sometimes he he all most of his decisions come from a place of altruism and that cannot be said for Murphy. Yeah. Whereas Murphy is, he is a Slytherin through and he through. He is the most Slytherin of all the Slytherins. There has never been a Slytherin <laughs> as Slytherin as Murphy. <laughs> Ever. Um, And I do think this is another example of Murphy trying to find a weak spot in Bellamy. And he found one, namely in Clark. And I think he was trying to do this, you know, to bring Ber- Bellamy around to his way of thinking. But this just clearly backfired in his face. I, I don't think he was realize, realized the full force of of. <laughs> anger that he would awaken in Bellamy I mean it certainly was no accident that Murphy brought up Clark's name no. um, because I don't think that had Bellamy not been here Murphy would have been like Clark would have done it no no you know? it was obvious like, it was for Bellamy it was targeted to get Bellamy on his team because Bellamy tends tends to agree with Clark right tends to <laughs> Clark is very persuasive <laughs> right but again I think Murphy forgot who he he's dealing with the Bellamy 2.0 yeah he's taken on a very Clark-like persona in his attempts to be thoughtful and logical and I think Murphy was was hoping that he would bring out the more emotional side of Bellamy well I actually do think you know in Bellamy 1.0 this argument I don't know if it would have worked but it definitely would have worked better than Bellamy 2.0 yes so yes I think I think Murphy wasn't wasn't remembering who he was dealing with (laughs) So Raven, as Raven is wont to do, has an idea. They could leave the prisoners alive, but block the signal from the ground so the Allegis crew can't remotely wake them up. Murphy reminds her that the Allegis crew has a shuttle so they can wake the prisoners up themselves, but Echo wonders if Raven can rig it so they can kill the prisoners from the ground. Raven says it's tricky but possible, and after a moment, Bellamy sees where Echo, what Echo is saying. Doing this would give them leverage. If the Allegis crew doesn't put their weapons down, Space Crew could pull the plug on the prisoners. So speaking of the Sorting Hat, I'm just going to throw out that Raven is the most quintessential (laughs) Ravenclaw and is very aptly named for it, and I love her. Yes, I mean, I don't think anyone in the fandom disputes that Raven is 100% a Ravenclaw. She is as Ravenclaw as I am. And guys, (laughs) I am a Ravenclaw. Hardcore. I am not. (laughs) No. Sarah teeters the line between Slytherin and Gryffindor. I'm basically Harry Potter. (laughs) I was a hat stall the first time I took the sorting at quiz. 
And I was 99% Ravenclaw. <laughs> um, and as for Echo, who? what do we sort Echo into? This is really hard. I think the obvious answer would be Slytherin. Yeah. But I, I see a lot of Ravenclaw in her, which is a weird pairing. It's usually... Oh, I don't think that's a weird pairing at all. Well, it's usually like... The weirdest pairing is Slytherin and Hufflepuff. That is true. That is a weird pairing. And I do think... Like, she has a little bit of Gryffindor in her also. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say she's predominantly Slytherin. She's certainly cunning. I don't think she's ambitious in any way, shape, no. or form. Um, I think she's happy to just, like, play her role. Yeah. Whatever that role may be. Yeah. Um, and she's, like, super, super strategical. She's also incredibly loyal. But then again, she is loyal to her own people and no one else, which is a very Slytherin quality. Yeah. Um, so she, she is, she's a Slytherin, but I think she has a lot of hidden complexity that kind of lends itself yeah. to other houses I think as well. she's, she's got a lot of other houses in her in, like, maybe, like, stronger um, capacity than we would originally give her credit for. Yeah. Raven is on it. Before she can start, Bellamy stops her. He wants to know what Murphy thinks. Murphy says it's a risk, and Bellamy agrees, but Clark didn't die so they can go back to the ground and make the same mistakes. After a few seconds of hesitation, Murphy decides, what the hell, let's be good guys. Uh, so I love how Bellamy can clearly see that what Murphy needs right now is to be like included and to feel like his opinion matters. Mm-hmm. And he kind of brings him back into the fold, even though they're kind of going against Murphy's plan. Yeah, he's fathering him. <laughs> he's parenting him. As Bellamy is wont to do. <laughs> uh, also, the what the hell, let's be good guys line is... Such a great line from Murphy, whose allegiances have always been so transient. Yes. Um, this this kind of, like, encapsulates who Murphy is. Like, on any day, he can change his mind about what kind of person he yep. wants to be. Today, we're going to be the good guys. Yeah. But who knows about tomorrow? <laughs> um, oh, and this is what I wanted to get into about a little bit of a... It's not, like, a rant, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused about what they're trying to do with Becco. Becco? That's, that is yeah. their ship. Yeah. Bellamy and Echo this season. Um... The script, if anyone's read it for this scene, had romantic moments here between Bellamy and Echo and, weirdly, Raven and Murphy. Um, Bellamy and Echo had, like, they shared some, like, romantic looks. And at the end of the scene, they were supposed to have this, like, romantic, like, forehead touch moment, which seems, like, really out of context, but whatever. And then Raven and Murphy, after Murphy says, let's be good guys, Raven kisses him on the cheek and Murphy, like, blushes um and the the line is something like the kiss didn't suck or something like that very weird i don't even want to get into that i don't know what they were going for thank god they cut both of those things in this episode in both of the scenes they released um this scene here and then the scene at the end with uh where bellamy discovers clark uh echo was supposed to be there but they have completely taken her out of the actual editing editing or like they've taken out the romantic aspects of it so like in this scene, there is zero romantic elements between Bellamy and, and, and Echo. And I I honestly, it's like, what is the point of them being together if they're not going to convince us that they're together? You know what I mean? Well, I think they've done what they consider due diligence convincing us that they're together. But I feel like, I don't know if it's because of the fan reaction and the outspokenness of the fandom or well, maybe they just, from a story perspective, changed their mind. But I feel like... What was originally on the page, they may have felt like it was too much and they just wanted to dial it back to be more palatable. Well, I definitely think the forehead touch was a little too much. But but I mean, I'm just saying that 
just showing us them kissing doesn't convince us about their relationship. We have to see we have to see a relationship from like all sides and angles and in many different situations to understand how characters function together um, in a romantic sense. And I honestly don't get it with Bellamy and Echo. Like I, I get it logically. I get why they're together. I do think that they ha- they're they're very similar in the right ways that that make them a good pairing. But I don't get it on in the text. If that yeah, makes any yeah, sense. they're missing the context. Um. It's like you can't just say something is true and not show that it's true because it's yes, just not convincing. It's cheating. They're cheating, cheating a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I'm okay with it. I mean, I know you're okay with it. I, I don't think they could have done this because of the fandom because at this point in time, this is episode three, like they filmed this and edited this months and months and months ago. Yeah. I doubt that that's why. I mean, unless like they had like leaked something to somebody and they got feedback saying that this is too much. I'm not sure. But I don't know. But I do think that maybe it was just from the writer's room where they were like looking this over from like a story arc and they were just, they felt like if they developed this too strongly, then it, it would make the inevitable breakup harder. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think the hundred two is They've had they've had a history of writing more romance into their scripts than they actually keep in the final edit of it. Yeah. Um, specifically for Clark and Bellamy, um, and specifically for like season one when there were like explicit romantic scenes, like Bellamy asking Clark to run away with him. Um, Man, those that they've are the taken good out, days. Which, <laughs> which I'm glad they took out because that would have been super cheesy and ridiculous. Right. Um, but I think that them taking out romantic pieces here and focusing on you know more of the plot is not the right move I think that I I really think that they need to show them being in a romance otherwise there's no point for them to be in one I'll just say that and we can move on but (laughs) yeah and like all Echo Bellamy rants I'm gonna remove myself from this (laughs) narrative uh, Zeke goes over to a still-tied Clark and gives her water. He asks for her name again, but Clark stays silent. Still, believe it or not, Zeke says this is the best conversation he's had in over a hundred years, which Clark kind of is a little surprised by. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then he reveals that he used to live in Saginaw, two hours outside of Detroit, and he drove a Harley. That makes sense. Perfect for our girl, Raven. Uh, he misses his bike more than he misses most of the people. I can also relate to that pretty deeply. <laughs> And, you know, it's just just like that. Snap of your fingers, and I'm in love. <laughs> Doesn't take much. I ship it so hard. <laughs> I liked getting this little glimpse into Zeke's, you know, life back on Earth. Um, and I wonder what kind of life must he have had? Because I don't know how long Eligius was supposed to be gone on this mission. It wasn't supposed to be 100 years, for sure. But it was certainly long enough that they had to be in cryosleep to get to wherever they were going. Yeah. Um. So I, I I doubt that he really had any like family or friends who were waiting for him. That or if he they, like I mean certainly not healthy relationships. Yeah, with them. the people that he didn't want to move on without him. Like yeah. he clearly didn't have that. Um, and 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 so I I just I don't know. I I think he might have had a really hard life, and I think that also makes him a great pair for Raven, <laughs> who also had a really hard life. Yeah, I mean maybe he didn't have a great home life. We know Raven didn't have a great home life. I just, he seems ready. He seems ready to be loved. He's primed. As and is I, Raven. I love it. And I ship <laughs> it. I ship it hard. Again, doesn't take much, but this is a big one. Yeah. <laughs> 
Over the radio, we suddenly hear McCreary say that they've run someone out of a cave and are cutting her off. McCreary tells Dioza they have a shot, and in that moment, Clark breaks her silence, saying that Maddie is just a child. Dioza asks how many of the others are in the woods, and Clark says it's just the two of them, and begs them not to shoot. Dioza tells them to fire at will, but they've lost their shot, and Clark knows where they are. Maddie is leading them into a trap, and she tells Dioza that if she doesn't listen to her, Dioza's men will die. So my stress level for Maddie in this scene wasn't healthy. <laughs> this is like a level one, and I, you know, we haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> I just, I this mean, like, was I, a test. <laughs> if you, you can't handle this. You can't handle Maddie at level one danger, then you should turn back now. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I'm, you know, Clark, Maddie's my child. Every single time Maddie is in danger, I like, my heart clenches, and I know she's going to be in the rest of the season. I don't know if she's going to survive the season, but... Hopefully she will. I feel like she will. I hope so. Um, but I'm with Clark. This was really scary. <laughs> this was scary. I don't want McCreary anywhere near Maddie. No. No. Get away. <laughs> Dioza yeah. is one thing, but McCreary is gross. Ugh. Uh, Zeke believes Clark, who says that she'll tell them everything they want if they let Maddie go. Dioza tells all units to stand down. McCreary doesn't want to let her get away and saying that he's taking the shot, but Dioza orders Falk to shoot McCreary in the leg if he disobeys, and if Falk disobeys, Harris is to shoot him in the head. So, a little bit more instability among the ranks here. Um, It's also interesting to me that Falk is disposable, but McCreary is not. Again interesting interesting and and why yeah and why and like what what about McCreary makes him so essential I just like don't understand what it is I do feel like McCreary well that makes no sense I originally thought McCreary um created the shot callers but I actually think that was probably just I think the prisoners probably had to wear those um when they were on the, the ship so probably not um but yeah, he he's gotta have he's there gotta have some hidden reason. talents besides. I mean, I guess torture is his talent, but anyone could torture. You They're know, a, they have a prison full of murderers and yeah. like horrible people. Like they are all good at torture. Yeah, I do like this little callback to the first episode when Maddie led Clark into the bear trap, and she's doing it again with these men. Um, it's her signature move, but <laughs> it's a really nice piece of continuity again, and I yeah. liked it. McCreary and his men stand down, and Dioza tells them to tra- check for traps in the area. McCreary finds a bear trap they almost stepped into, and Dioza tells them to come back to base camp. Clark thanks Dioza, and Dioza thanks her for telling the truth, promising that as long as she keeps doing that, her friends in the woods will stay alive, and so will she. Dioza sits down and asks Clark to tell her everything, starting with how the world ended, to which Clark asks, Which time, bitches? Mic drop! <laughs> So, question for you. Do you think Clark is outmaneuvered in this scene um, by Dioza because her desperation level for Maddie is super high and it's making her think less logically? Or do you think it's because she just hasn't been challenged by somebody who is so so evenly matched to her as Dioza is? Or is it both? I think it's just... I mean, I think it partially is because Dioza is her equal Dioza is Clark um but I also just think it's you know you win some you lose some when you're paired evenly like this yeah I don't think it's I don't think Clark's guard was down or that she she was just she was just out I wouldn't say she was outsmarted but you know she just kind of came to the end of the line and had to make a choice and she chose to save Maddie versus staying silent so yeah I mean I feel like this is a 
an example of the, the way that Clark is changed. You know, in previous seasons, we've seen Clark make some really tough calls and sacrifices before for the greater good. Um, and she just folded like a napkin here. Yeah, but to be fair, if you put anyone in there for Maddie, I don't think Clark would have let any of them be killed. It's like her mother, Bellamy, any of her friends, Raven, you know. I, I, I don't think it was necessarily her, like, love for Maddie here. It was just that's someone that she cares about and she can do something to save them. No, but Clark always finds, like, the third option when you're pre- presented with two. Like, she either tricks them or outsmarts them or gives them another out outlet. And instead of negotiating or trying to vie for a, a different solution that's a compromise of some kind, she just didn't even attempt she just I, gave up I disagree I think Clark did find the third option here I think she was saying like please don't shoot I'll tell you everything um and Gioza was like I'm gonna shoot and Clark was like well I have information that you need don't shoot or your men will die and like basically forced Gioza to call off her men so like Clark won that round like even though Gioza ultimately gets what she wants Clark is also getting what she wants so I guess it's like a, a win and lose situation yeah okay um, I you've swayed me over. <laughs> uh, but I really, 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 really wish I could hear Clark tell the entire story of the hundred season one through four to Dio's and Zeke because I I want to see their faces as she's trying to explain all of this. It would have been so glorious. It would have been <laughs> seven hours long, <laughs> and it would have been worth every minute of it. <laughs> oh man. Uh, Raven is at the computer when Bellamy comes in and asks her what's wrong. Raven tells him that with the remote access to the cryopods blocked, they won't be able to pull the plug from the ground. Someone has to be on the ship. Bellamy says they'll just make the threat on the ship, but but Raven reminds him that they won't be able to know if the Allegis crew is following through, so they need eyes on the ground. Bellamy offers to do it, but Raven says it's way too complicated for for her to explain to him and for him to handle. It has to be now. So... Do we really think it's too complicated for Bellamy, or do we just think that Raven said that because she didn't want him to be trapped there in her place? No, I think she said... I mean, I think maybe both. I don't know. Yeah. I think Raven's, like, post-Alley brain is something of a wonder, and she is so good at computer stuff. Bellamy has, like, no training in this whatsoever. Yeah, Um, But I also think that she, she really didn't want him to sacrifice himself at the same time yeah I agree I think it's probably both but yeah Bellamy doesn't want to leave her here but Raven says that Amori can get them down and he needs to find his sister and make a deal for peace once everyone's friends they'll come back for their people and she'll hitch a ride with them Bellamy tells tells her she'll be stuck up here and have to kill 300 people if they fail uh, and so they need to come up with another plan he left Clark to die and he won't do that again so it's a nice reminder of how leaving Clark has really weighed on Bellamy all these years and, and changed him and shaped his every decision going forward. Um, even though I think he does know there was no other option, um, I, I just like kind of getting that reminder that he hasn't forgotten. Yeah, I think it sits on him every day. And even though I know that he doesn't think there was another option, that doesn't alleviate any of the guilt yeah. that he feels about it at all. Raven tells Bellamy there's an escape pod, and if he fails, she can go down to the ground in that. She promised six years ago that she'd find a way to get them back to the ground, and this is it. She needs to him to let her get them all home. 
So as usual, Raven is five steps ahead of everyone, and she knows exactly how this conversation is going to play out. You know, you can see her telling Bellamy exactly what he needs to hear in order to force him to let her stay behind. And it's it's manipulative and brilliant and and very, very, very Raven. Yeah. Um, and I do I do like this idea that this is kind of the way that Raven is like exercising some of the frustration that she felt at not being able to get them down to the ground earlier. And I think she really feels like it's her responsibility to, to see this through. So I don't know if she's she is the only one who can do it or not, but I think for her own sake, she wants to fulfill that promise. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, you know, as as the mechanical genius, Raven clearly feels like it's up to her to save them while they're in space. She's taken this weight on her shoulders that she hasn't quite done before. Like, even though Raven has been instrumental in um, saving people in pretty much every other season, she's never kind of... Bear, bear the brunt of that it's always been Clark who's kind of taken the the full emotional weight of it mm-hmm. um but this time Raven's the one who's really really kind of put it on herself that it has to be her who can save them yeah um and she's right it really does have to be her <laughs> she's the only one smart enough to do it um I think a lot of this this feeling also stems from her own guilt about having left Clark on the ground you know we talk about Bellamy and his guilt but I think Raven also has a ton of guilt because I mean after all she's the one who told Clark to go to the tower to fix the signal so she sent Clark on what she thinks was like a death mission um and because Clark was always the one who handled like the the big picture emotional aspects of leadership I think Raven is trying her best to pick up the slack and and carry that in Clark's absence yeah and honor her too yeah Back at the docking bay, Bellamy tells them all it's time to go. Amori asks where Raven is, and Bellamy says that she had to stay and run things from the ship. Amori offers Murphy as a sacrifice, but Bellamy awkwardly says that it is technical. And like, wow, double whammy for Murphy there. He's not having a great day. He really isn't, but it's his own fault. Yeah, it's his own making. <laughs> I mean, you have no one else to blame but yourself, Murphy. Monty decides that he'll stay. Harper doesn't like that. But Bellamy tells them that it has to be Raven. And once they have a truce, she'll either come down with the prisoners or leave in the escape pod. Either way, she'll be fine. And Maury is worried about being able to land the ship without Raven. But Bellamy tells her that she has this. Murphy walks back into the ship and says he's staying too. Raven might need backup. And with the Maury flying, staying on the ship is the survivor's move. He'll see them on the other side. Um, ominous words, by the way, because that is what Jasper said right before he died. And now I don't think that, I don't think Murphy's going to die. I have zero concerns about that. Um, but it it was an interesting callback to last season. Yeah, I do think it kind of, um, is a signal to his emotional state at this moment. Because even though Murphy always has this, you know, swagger and facade of, like, not caring you can see how hurt he is when Amori says, let, you know, like, let John stay behind. Yeah. You know, she, like, you know, is obviously lashing out in her own way. But I do think that that really struck him. And I don't think that he can bear to be around her after this. I think more than anything, he's trying to escape, like, the proximity to Amori and staying behind. I disagree. I think more than anything, he's trying to impress Amori by staying behind. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's both. <laughs> Maybe it's both. Uh, and Amori's face too as he leaves we saw it in the trailer um but it's just she has like so many emotions playing there she's like surprised and a little impressed and also worried for him and I just it I love this couple so much I know I know (laughs) there's so many good couples 
I this mean, like, season? We've talked about this a little bit, but I feel like, you know, they're just so perfectly matched because they care about each other so much, but neither of them have the communication skills to patch things up right now. And again, they just need space. Yeah, they need to they need to work on themselves, both of them, um, in different ways. And then they can come back together and be even more glorious. Stronger than they were before together. <laughs> Uh, this was also the part where I was really starting to worry that we wouldn't get the Bell Arc reunion because, like, F- all of the reviewers had been not, like, outright saying, but basically saying this was the episode it was going to happen. But at this point, there was, like, eight minutes eight minutes left in the episode, and they were still in space. So I, I like, could not figure out how that was going to happen. Um, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, <laughs> but it, it definitely, like, from this point on... It's just like bam, 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 bam. Like so many things happen. Yeah, all we're at once. in rapid fire yeah. plot mo- mode right now. <laughs> mood, mode, mood, mood. <laughs> Raven is watching the pod leave through the bridge window when Murphy appears. Raven, shocked, asks what he's doing there, and he's there to keep her company, and he doesn't know why everyone else is so surprised. He'd understand if there wasn't an escape pod, of course. At which Raven interrupts him and reveals that there isn't an escape pod. Shock. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> She only told Bellamy that because he wouldn't leave her behind otherwise. And then Raven smiles and says that Murphy's right. Dying alone would suck. And as she walks away, Murphy stares at the retreating pod. Son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I love this callback to season two because Raven is actually replying to something that Murphy said to her back in season two, episode one, uh, when they were both in the dropship kind of dying dying yeah and he was like it would suck to die alone and i really love that raven not only remembers that yeah. but is like kind of like t- ending that conversation <laughs> treating it fondly you yeah. know like it's a really nice demonstration of how far these two have come well yeah i mean she's forgiven him for everything that he's done and i i mean like i think they really do love each other and in, in a platonic platonic well, is we'll it get to that again. I honestly don't even know I after know. episode four, but we'll get to that. <laughs> um, also, it is very obvious that Raven was lying about the escape pod. Like, come on, Murphy. Yeah. Come on. I mean, Bellamy isn't this dim. So, I, I mean, I think that he wanted to believe her, like to have an excuse to leave her so that he could make it back to his sister. I don't think he did it consciously, but I think there was like, I don't think he really tried too hard to like figure out what Raven was actually yeah, saying. Yeah, I think he was like he preferred to stay in denial. He believed what he wanted to believe. Yeah. So I don't think he tried hard to convince himself otherwise because it it was pretty clear to everyone. It was everyone very else. very clear. <laughs> she didn't even she would have brought that up as like the first point in her yeah. plan if it had been true. Yeah, Raven is a Ravenclaw. <laughs> Literally I mean, like, it's not subtle. It's not subtle. (laughs) They were like, if you were wondering what house she was in, it's in her name. (laughs) In the pod, it's a tough ride back down to Earth. Amori is concentrating hard at the controls, but it's clear she's terrified. Bellamy has to remind her to breathe. And after several rocky moments, Amori lands them safely on Earth. Bellamy calls her name, but Amori doesn't respond. It takes her a few seconds for them for her to realize they didn't die, and she's the one who got them there. Yay! And this was another just great little Bellamy Amori moment that really melted my heart. Um, you know, these two haven't interacted too much, but the little interactions we do see, how Bellamy is just so supportive of her, it it's so good, guys. It's so it's tender. So good. It's really great to see someone else reminding Amori that she is capable and that they have faith in her because 
you know, her friends might not stake her worth on her usefulness, but Amori stakes her worth on her usefulness. And that's something that she's going to have to overcome. Yeah. I mean, she's just so shocked that she actually did it. I would really like to see, you know, over the course of this season, I'd like to see her grow a little more and become more capable of recognizing her self-worth on her own and less tied to her merits. Yeah, they both have to work on themselves, her and Murphy. Yeah, I would like Murphy to do this too. (laughs) In different ways. I'll give them each their own homework assignments. (laughs) Echo hurries them along, saying they can celebrate once Raven and Murphy are back down to the ground. But right then, there's no telling how many people saw them land, and they need to take cover in the trees before anyone shows up. They climb out of the ship, but they're already too late. Dios's men are already there. They tell Space Crew to get on their knees, and Bellamy tries to reason with them, saying they don't want to talk. They do want to talk, not fight. <laughs> that was old Bellamy speaking. They, they want to fight, Bellamy not 1. talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we haven't delved too much in the ways that Bellamy has changed since, since we last saw him in season four, but it is like shockingly apparent drastic just like the way that he carries himself and the way that he talks and the way that he conducts his relationships everything he does now is so calm so steady like he's very clearly become a pacifist he's become an optimist which is weird um it's just it's like i i don't even want to say it's a subtle change it is a subtle change but because bellamy was so nuanced change because bellamy was so like in your face before with his emotions like seeing how he's like toned things down is is a little shocking to see yeah he is way more subdued yeah in this scene particularly he actually reminds me a lot of Kane because he's just so diplomatic yeah and like extending you know the olive branch and trying very hard to maintain some sort of peace and again, that optimism is laughable, but it does remind me of Kane, and I like to think that their relationship has some bearing on his countenance um, as well as Clark. I will say too, though, I mean, I do like this new Bellamy. Oh no, I, I, <laughs> I kind of miss the old Bellamy. When you were just talking, I was thinking, remember back in season one when he was like oh snarky <laughs> and he had that smirk on his face that you just wanted to well, kiss that Bellamy, or slap off. That Bellamy was fake Bellamy because I think Bellamy was putting on an act. Pretty much mostly through season one. He was, like, trying to be much cooler than he really was. No, um, he's an epic dork. He, he's, <laughs> I mean, like, he's such a dork. He's not the threesome type. I don't... <laughs> Whatever. Um, but, but like, even the ability that we've seen in, like, seasons three and four, I, like, I kind of miss his, like, emotional reactions a little bit. I think it's terrible because I think he's become much more of, like, a holistic person right now. No, I think he's better off for it. He, I think he's better for it. But that doesn't mean me, that I, I don't miss the old I one. I really, really just, like, have very fond memories of him in season one I being mean, an asshole. Season one was so good. <laughs> like, it was great. The differences in tone between season one and the, season five are just, like, <laughs> we're, like, in a different, like, the, universe. The, the, the decline, the descent <laughs> is, like, a 90% drop off. Yeah. Um... But also, I've said this many times this episode, but Echo is my MVP of this episode. I know everyone um, talks about Bellamy in this, and I, I get that, and I love him in this, but for me, this is the first, this is the episode where I'm like, it's like my emotional awakening <laughs> for Echo. She's just so damn practical and so calculating, and I love every single thing she does and says. 
And I, I, I'm really, really excited to see where they take her now because I feel like I have a much better grasp on who she is and on where she's going. Um, and I'm already very worried about Octavia in a way that I wasn't really before. I mean, like I was worried before, but now I like genuinely like Echo and want Octavia to stay far away from her. Yeah. Yeah. And it just makes me really confident that they can execute the plan of Echo's arc yeah. in a satisfying and, and like dramatic way. Yeah. That's interesting. Because I knew that was the plan. I just, yeah. you know, and I, I was, I mean, I always have faith that these guys can do whatever they want, but sometimes it doesn't always work the way that they Riley. want it to. <clears throat> Sorry. A little cough there. Yeah. <laughs> Riley. Um, but I do feel like they have a really strong grip on what they're doing with her. Yeah. Uh, so back in the church, Clark is explaining how the first war started, that on the Ark they were told that the Chinese fired the first strike, but that it was actually started by an AI called Ali, whose intention was to reduce the population. But as she's saying this, she's cut off by a man on the radio telling Dioza that they found five hostels. Um, and personally, I feel robbed that I didn't get to hear this full story, because I really want Clark to like try to explain it concisely and like intelligently because <laughs> and then the ridiculous. grounders killed my boyfriend and then <laughs> i fell and in love with their queen who had a chip in her back that was the first or the second ai <laughs> right right not the first ai the second ai uh which has all of the dead queens now or kings kind of implanted in, the, in this device and that is why <laughs> dot 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 i have black blood <laughs> Oh, man. It would have been good. I do think it's interesting that the writers chose to use China as the scapegoat. It just feels really relevant to what's going on in our current politics right now. And I'm wondering if that was intentional or just an accident. (laughs) I mean, China would have more capabilities, but right now it feels like North Korea would be a good scapegoat. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, we were just kind of, like, always pairing off with Russia. I mean, (laughs) Freudian slip, guys. Not Russia. China. (laughs) Some of us are pairing off with Russia. Some of us are. (laughs) Sorry. God, a lot of coughs. I'm, I'm getting a little bit bronchitis. You know what? Let's move on from this. <laughs> uh, Dioza is furious, reminding Clark that she said what, what would happen if Clark lied. Clark says she didn't lie, but Dioza doesn't believe her. She hits her and tells McCreary to take her outside and use the collar. Zeke protests, saying that Clark was cooperating, which is why, according to Dioza, Clark will live, but her friends won't. She tells the man on the radio to kill four of Clark's friends. I feel like Zeke's survival instincts could use some work, you know. He's been testing his limits with Dioza <laughs> for the entire episode, and I am not sure she is going to entertain him much longer. Like, buddy, pick your battles. I mean, well, for one thing, I don't think Zeke has been disobeying at all. He's been questioning, but he hasn't disobeyed a single time. No, he's um, testing her. He's he's questioning. Yeah. But also, like, Zeke isn't Murphy. He's very clearly not okay with doing horrible things to survive. Yet. Um, yet. He's only been on the 100 for two episodes. That is true. But, I mean, he's in a very precarious position, and yet he's still, you know, pushing the limits. Um, yeah. I think that says something about him. I, I think that it means that he not he isn't necessarily the quote-unquote survivor that like Murphy or even Clark um, are so what that means I don't know I mean I think it partly means that the show very clearly wants to put him in the good guy well I mean yes because they want to pair him up with Raven and I think they're going out of their way to show it over and over again plus though I, I really don't think Zeke's position is that precarious right now just because Zeke 
they need Zeke. He is the only one who can fly the ships and work the machines. Yeah. Like, they are not trained in that way like Zeke is. So Zeke's but position they... is pretty set. Like, I mean, there's only so far, but I think I mean, he's they, okay. They could make his life very difficult is all I'm saying. And they I'm scared could, of Dioza. So. They could, but I think that he gets leeway because of his talents. Well, let's not test that theory. I mean, I don't think... all I'm saying. I think that that leeway will only go so far, but I... I don't think he's even you are close running to, out of runway I, I don't think he's even close to his his limit yet <laughs> we'll see when he meets raven we'll see when that's that's when he gets close to the <laughs> just right to the edge uh just as dioza's men goes to shoot space crew maddie shows up like a little badass murder queen so she's like basically a mini clark here uh and she shoots the allegius crew Echo moves to defend the rest of them, but Bellamy shows her that Maddie is just a kid. And at that, Mel- Maddie recognizes Bellamy and calls out his name. And everyone is shocked that the murder child knows his name. Uh, but Maddie says that Clark knew he would come, and Bellamy realizes that Clark is alive. <laughs> oh my god, this was just... It hurt so bad. This was everything. I mean, Bellamy's face, when he realizes that she recognizes him... And that, you know, she's belongs to Clark. Clark is alive. And this is like a child that he gets to adopt. It's just like he loves her immediately. I love them both. It was heart-wrenching and beautiful. And oh my god. This is, I mean, I have like... I mean, I, I loved the ending of this of this episode. But my one qualm, as I kind of alluded to earlier, is that this is just going really, really fast. Like... He finds out Clark's alive, but then he, like, is immediately going to rescue. It's, it's, there's just a lot of things that happen at once, and I feel like we don't quite get enough time, the time that I would have wanted to really, like, marinate with Bellamy's facial expressions, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> he I makes such like, great facial expressions. I would like to ruminate on this a little longer. It is going really, really quickly. Um, but, but, yeah, it is what it is. Um, it's also interesting me, interesting to me that, that they um, they don't show Echo's face at the realization that Clark is alive. And I don't mean this in, like, a love triangle capacity. I mean this in she is, again, supposedly in this relationship with Bellamy. And he just found out his best friend's alive. And she's been the one who seems like she's, you know, supporting him, um, reminding him that, you know, Octavia's alive. Octavia's okay. Octavia can handle it. So when he finds out that Clark is alive, it feels like we should see something from her, even if it's like relief or happiness or joy for him. You know, it's just, it was weird because they flashed to Harper and they flashed to Monty, but we didn't see Echo. And it was, it was just a very awkward moment for me. I, yeah, I hear you. I didn't even notice, but that's probably because she wasn't there. Uh, Monty asks about the others in the bunker, and Maddie says they're still there. Bellamy doesn't know how that can be, but Maddie says she'll explain on the way, and she grabs Bellamy's hand and drags him off like her dad. Oh, God, <laughs> it's such a small gesture, but it, it is so significant because it shows that she doesn't consider him a stranger. You know, she's so familiar with him already. She she is this person who has had barely any contact. She's only been with Clark for most of her life and is distrustful of everybody else and is murdering lots of people. <laughs> but, you know, one look at Bellamy and she's like, Dad, hi, how are you? And it's just, it's a tiny little mo- movement, but it means so much. Yeah. It's, I mean, it just kind of goes to show the kinds of stories Clark has been telling about Bellamy specifically that she knows that, like, it wasn't like, 
oh my gosh, space crew, Clark knew you would come. It was like, Bellamy, Clark knew you would come. And <laughs> also that, like, Clark has impressed upon her that no matter what, Bellamy would be the kind of person that you could you can trust. trust immediately. Yeah. And that who is, like, that Maddie trusts that he will understand the, like, imperativeness of the situation. You know, she's like, we can't talk about this now. We have to go save Clark's butt. And he's like, okay, I'm on the same page. You know, she's like, she's so attuned to him in the same kinds of ways that Clark is. Yeah. It's just alarming. Yeah. Outside, Clark gets shocked over and over by McCreary's shock collar. While Clark claims she doesn't know who those people are, Zeke tries to stop Dioza, but Dioza won't listen. Suddenly, the rover dries up. And Dioza tells her people to fire at her command. Clark is horrified, thinking Maddie is in the car, but we flash inside the rover and see Maddie and Bellamy inside. <laughs> oh boy. This this torture scene was particularly hard to watch. There's been a lot of torture scenes on the hundred. Um <laughs> but Eliza Taylor's acting again, it's just so palpable. And that like little scream that she would emit every time the shock collar zapped her was was so awful it, it was really hard I mean for even me. the sound of the shock collar too was particularly it was gross like, it was awful and yeah. it was really really hard for me to get through as a tiny note here I do really love um how Clark and Bellamy are still connected with their mirroring Maddie no lines um it, it just like they are mentally still on the same page even though they haven't seen each other in six years yeah they like they like treat her they approach her in like the same yeah. kinds of ways it's their methods are very similar yeah bellamy tells maddie to take the rover back and promises he won't let anything happen to clark then he comes out with his hands up at first clark can only see his outline but then bellamy says he's unarmed and just wants to talk and immediately clark knows it was him and oh my god this scene was the most like extra dramatic ridiculous scene reunion of bellark that is possible to be. <laughs> that was not a coherent sentence because this is a ridiculous scene. <laughs> it was ridiculous, but it was perfect. It was perfect. I mean, like, God. First off, I mean, we talk Their about faces. Bellark. Their We talk about Bellark a lot. I, I mean, definitely ship it, but I know that the show has always been very careful to not put romance in the forefront in any capacity. Um, so people were, were you know, theorizing about how Bellamy and Clark would reunite and they were like oh it'll be like right at the end of the episode and they'll see each other and then it will like cut to black and I was like they will never do that that's like way too romantic that's like way too dramatic for Bellark um it's not gonna happen that is what happened guys it was a closer of the episode of them staring at each other we'll get to in a second but it's just it, it like surpassed my wildest expectations yeah I mean we just I feel like I've been in the desert so long. <laughs> For a year. I would have An never. An entire year. No, I mean with like my Bellark shipping. I'm like stranded on a desert island and I haven't, I haven't had a drop of water in <laughs> five years, <laughs> five seasons. But I, this was perfect in every way. And I, I especially want to call out because it was so extra, but that doesn't mean that there isn't like nuance oh, and acting beautiful. to this performance because Eliza's face I mean the emotions going through Clark's um face you know it, one you know it's she's relieved that he's alive shocked that he's alive you know she's so happy that he's back and that he's on the ground with her 
you know, she's also terrified that he has somehow found his way into this mess already. Um, and she's like also worried that he's going to do something risky, you know, just for her sake, which is his M.O. And, you know, it's like all of those things, this like shifting facial expressions and it's just done so beautifully well and you can see at every single moment what she's thinking and she doesn't say a word i think one of the things that makes the belark relationship so good for a lot of people (laughs) not everyone but a lot um is that these two characters and these two actors are able to do so much without saying anything like they're both um, Bob Morley's and Eliza Taylor's facial expressions, they're able to convey a lot of emotion through their eyes and through like the placement of their mouth and, and just little movements of their face um, in a way that a lot of actors can't do. So when you get the two of them together, it automatically becomes so much more powerful and so much more meaningful and so much more like tension-filled. Yeah. Because they, they're like stares say more than like a thousand words from other ships it's in true the world. <laughs> it's true so i mean that's i think that's particularly in this in the scene where they don't speak to each other at all and it that- still is so insanely like impactful yeah i mean and it's also why after five seasons of actually no contextual evidence of romance <laughs> that we are all very much convinced well I think that there is contextual evidence of romance. I think there is no direct verbalized acknowledgement of romance. Those are two different things for me. (laughs) I would argue that, but I don't want to right now. I don't think we have time to argue that right now. That's a whole other podcast. (laughs) an entire podcast by itself. So Dioza asks Bellamy to give him a good reason why they shouldn't kill him right here. And Bellamy says he'll give her 283 because that's how many people of her people will die if they can't make a deal. And he holds up the best dad in the universe mug to prove his point. Um, We had mentioned earlier in the episode, they originally wanted to use a captain daddy mug. And I am just devastated that that didn't happen because can you imagine? (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Even so, this is a great mug, and it's now Bellamy's mug. It is now Bellamy's mug. I mean, like, has there ever been a more Bellamy moment than him displaying his best dad in the universe mug? No, it's, like, so extra. It's just, like, so dead obvious. (laughs) Bellamy uh, signals for the rover to drive away, and Clark cries in relief at seeing Maddie off to safety. Dioza considers Bellamy saying that she that his willingness to trade 283 lives for one means that Clark must be pretty important to him. And Bellamy says, she is. <laughs> and we died. We're dead. Oh my god. We're alive, but we're dead. I mean, that's another that that line right there was another like I mean, I again, this is a different podcast, but people can always explain away Bellark dialogue as like Yes, they love each other, but they're not romantic. It's platonic. Yeah, quote unquote platonic. I'm I like I'm sorry, but this is like the most romantic dialogue ever. And it's just ridiculous and I can't get over it. Yeah, I and mean like this is like a soap opera. It oh, it kills me, guys. This episode, man. <laughs> Woo! So we got through it. That yeah. was the episode. a uh, couple of discussion points we want to go through. Favorite lines. Um I will go first, because I'm thinking about it. 
So my favorite line was Raven's line when she said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I did talk about this before, so I will just say very briefly that this was such a beautiful quote. And I am just always so impressed how this show relies on literary references to enrich the storytelling. And I I love the idea that Raven can just quote this from memory. (laughs) It's really awesome and I love it. What was your favorite line? Um, my favorite line was which time Clark said in reference to Dioza <laughs> asking out. her how the world ended. Um, it's just such an epic line from Clark. And in the matchup between her and Dioza with, you know, each one fighting to stay on top, even though Clark was kind of below her in this exact scene, like that line, it kept Clark in the running. It was so good. <laughs> it was so good. So oddly, we both have the same favorite scene. And I will let you guys take one second to guess which scene it is. Okay. Did you guess it's the last one where they got reunited? You were right. (laughs) That is our favorite scene. It was, I mean, it was my favorite scene, but a very, very, very close second to me was the first scene where Dioza and Clark were like sitting down and they were kind of matching wits and Clark was not speaking and she was looking at the radio. That whole scene destroyed me on so many levels that that is a very close runner-up to the bell arc reunion right but nothing will beat the bell arc reunion no that that can't happen (laughs) so what's coming up in the next episode so the next episode is called pandora's box and i will give you one guess as to which box they will be opening yes (laughs) i wonder (laughs) and the horrors that will come out (laughs) yeah a monster specifically Oh, Oh, man, (laughs) next week. God. Well, it's going to be really close because we're going to try and get the next episode up in the next few days. So Yeah, I was was saying, I tweeted out, um, we're hoping for Sunday, but Monday at the latest. But we're hoping for Sunday. We're hoping for Sunday, but Monday at the latest. So look out for episode four then. Um, That is our show. That's our episode. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can. You can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. That is S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at skycast, S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T. And you can tweet at us at our own Twitter accounts. I am at bperlman89. And I'm at Sarah R. McCabe. So thank you for joining us as always on Skycast. And we will see you very soon. Very, very soon. Very, very soon. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs)